How many movies from when we grew up or from when you grew up do you remember by the movie poster, by the advertising? Movie posters and advertising and on-set photography play such an important role when marketing a film, but also when sort of branding imagery with the general public. I don't know how many films that I remember specifically based upon the movie poster. And how many times do you see a movie poster and you're like, what, that wasn't even in the movie, right? How many times do movie posters sell you on stuff and you go to see it, you're super excited and you go in there and you're like, what was that whole sequence that was painted on that poster? Advertising plays such an important role in getting your movie seen by the public. And if you are spending every waking hour of your life trying to become a director, trying to be a screenplay writer, trying to be a movie producer, and you're spending all that time focused, hyper-focused on the skills that you need to tell that story, right? How do I direct actors? How do I uh, change my camera angles? Like, how do I force the audience to see things from our perspective? I mean, that in itself takes a lifetime to figure out. One thing that most young filmmakers forget about, and even experienced filmmakers and actors forget about, is that at the end of the day, it doesn't matter how good that footage is in the can, it doesn't matter how great that story is when you run it out of premiere. At the end of the day, if you can't convince people to go see it, if you can't convince strangers to go see it, then does it really exist? <laughs> I mean, at the end of the day, as a filmmaker, I'm constantly thinking about how did I pay for this? Where did that money come from? And I need to make at least the amount that was loaned to me back. And so as we plan out our productions, as we put things together, how often do you actually think about the power of onset stills? Now, who shoots onset stills? Well, I mean, technically, the job most of the time these days is labeled as behind-the-scenes photographer. Now, when you think about a behind-the-scenes photographer, what are you thinking? This is a person that is running around set, maybe they have a Leica, maybe they have a small camera, and they're taking pictures of the crew, shooting things, and these are just sort of like glorified Instagram pictures, right? Well, not necessarily. Actually, not at all. A great uh, behind the scenes photographer, a great stills photographer is the way that I would actually phrase it, is someone that is collaborating with the director, with the producers, with the actors to create imagery that will captivate a hungry, needing, ticket buying audience. So, welcome. You're listening to the brand new episode of In Love with the Process. I'm your host, Mike Petchy. Come on in, take a seat. Uh, our guest is coming in studio today, so I've spent some time preparing food. I've got trays of uh, little charcuterie trays laid out, some pretzels, some grapes. I think we got some white wine in the fridge. Uh, I'm pumped because I have a legend, a legend coming to my home today, and he is going to share some of his stories with me. And let me pre-warn you, I've already done a pre-interview with him. I actually was introduced to him by Mike over at Fujifilm, uh, one of my new friends and one of my new contacts at Fujifilm, who also sponsors the show, by the way. Um, but uh, when Mike and I were hanging out, he was like, dude, I know this photographer. He's a legend in the business. He has been shooting uh, behind the scenes photography on movie sets 
for ages at this point. He's now in his 80s and he's had a lifetime of work. He's been working since he was 16 years old in the business. Um, and uh, he would love to come on the show and tell his story. And I was like, of course, dude. A fucking course. <laughs> Thank you so much. And he's like, well, we all should get together because we like to drink wine. We like to hang out. So let's the three of us get together and sort of meet before you do the interview. I said, okay. Back and forth through the email. We set up a date and time to meet at the Smokehouse. Those of you who don't know, the Smokehouse is one of the oldest, coolest bar restaurants in Los Angeles that has been around most likely since Warner Brothers was constructed. It's right across the street from Warner Brothers Studios. And this is one of those experiences that you can only get in Los Angeles, right? You walk in, it's dim lighting, the furniture and everything feels like it's from pre the 50s, pre the 40s, right? It's got those like red leather booths that wrap around and the single light. Looks like Rob Richardson lit the set. Right? You go in there, and I'd never been before. So not only am I excited to meet today's guest, but at the same token, I'm like, I've driven by this place, I don't know, about a hundred times, over a hundred times at this point. And every time I do it, I'm like, what is in there? What's the spot? And just showing up to this restaurant was a lot of fun. They valet, so you gotta go through the process of valeting. And I step out of the car and I'm wearing my shorts and my sneakers, and I'm like, oof, am I underdressed for the spot? Walk inside. And once you uh, go into the lobby, the first thing you notice, the walls are just covered with black and white photography of old Hollywood and a lot of the actors and the folks that have been into this restaurant. Um, and it is super fucking cool. I was the first one there, walked in and went to the bar, really cool little wraparound bar. By the way, was just referenced, I'm listening now, on Audible, I'm listening to Quentin Tarantino's novel version of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and both Brad Pitt's character and Leo's character actually sit at this bar, in this restaurant, at the Smokehouse, which was ironic when I was listening to it last night. Um, I get there early, uh, and in walks uh, Michael from Fujifilm and today's guest, Mr. David James. Now, David James has been a photographer. He has been working for studios since like six, 16, 17 years old. Uh, his movie, if you go look him up right now, take a second, go to IMDb and look up David James and uh, look at his list of films. And it's a massive list of movies that he's worked on a massive list of amazing directors that he's collaborated with, amazing actors that he's photographed in front of his camera. Um, and just to rattle off a few, Fiddler on the Roof, right? Jesus Christ Superstar, he has great stories on the show about that one. Uh, he also shot for those fans from the 80s, Highlander, which we talk a bit about. He actually had to go back to his negatives recently because they're doing a new Highlander movie. He also shot a classic, Fish Called Wanda, he did all the uh, the onset photos for that. He shot one of my favorites, Black Rain, Ridley Scott. He knows Ridley. He's friends with Ridley. He shot most of uh, Spielberg's films uh, after, I think he started on Schindler's List, or maybe he started right before Schindler's List, but he did Schindler's. He did Private Ryan. He did Band of Brothers. He did The Pacific. He did um, the, uh, God, what was the sci-fi one with uh, Tom Cruise? Minority Report. Um, all the way up. Lincoln. Uh, he also 
works closely with uh, Tom Cruise, and he has done all the recent Mission Impossible movies. He has shot, and he talks about how he got it. If you go to J David James's website, which will be listed in the description of this episode, you can look at the epic, epic photo he took of Tom Cruise, the one-of-a-kind photograph he took of Tom Cruise, literally sitting at the toppest point of the tallest structure on the planet, wearing jeans, a t-shirt, and no shoes, right? Crazy story about how he got that shot. We'll get into that on today's show. Um, and uh, he also did, for those of you who are super young and listening to it, he also shot all the stuff for Force Awakens and the uh, Star Wars stuff. He is a legend. Uh, he has been trained uh, in film. He was trained in uh, dark rooms. He was he started his career processing photos for the studios of working for MGM. Um, and he worked his way onto set and his stories that he tells are inspiring. They will teach you things. I took notes. And here's the one thing that you're gonna notice about this episode. I don't talk a lot. I'm very quiet on the show. Every once in a while I chime in to keep him going, but I'm completely fascinated by everything that he's talking about. And if there's one thing I know, if you're with someone that has more experience than you, if you're with somebody who has a lifetime of experiences on a set in the situation that I want to be, I shut the fuck up <laughs> because there's so much to take in and I'm so excited to have you here. So thank you, everybody. Uh, like I said, you're listening to In Love With The Process. This is my show. My name is Mike Petchy. Uh, for those of you who are just showing up, uh, I have been doing this show now for about, how long have we been doing it, everybody? About five plus years. I'm a director myself, and uh, I try to bring knowledge to those young filmmakers that are out there and to just general movie fans, to people that love this kind of stuff. The show is unfiltered. We don't use Instagram filters on it. Uh, we give you the real, real insight into how stuff works with the hopes that you walk away with enough to build your own little footstool to get a bit further than I am. Okay? Um, and I also want to thank everybody for following me on Instagram at Mike Petchy and following the podcast at In Love With The Process Pod. That's In Love With The Process P-O-D on Instagram. There, keep following me. You will. I will keep you up to date on what we're doing with the show, on contests, on sponsors. Um, I will also be keeping you up to date on what's happening with my films. And with the stuff that we're shooting. Um, so, and that's also the best place to give me feedback on shows like today. So, write me messages there. Let me know what you think. Are there questions that you wish I had asked? Is there, are there guests that you want me to get on the show? Perfect place to get in touch with me. Um, and uh, for those of you listening, if you want, I'm going to try to get as many supplemental material, maybe some images from David. I might put some trailers up for the movies that we talk about on the show. All that will end up at inlovewiththeprocess.com on today's episode page. It's a great way to sort of sort through things as you're listening to the show. So that's at inlovewiththeprocess.com. And if you are new to the show and you're like, hey, man, 
Uh, I just looked at your queue list on Apple Podcast and on Spotify, and you're well over 200 images. What do I do? Do I go back to episode one and listen straight through? Yeah, you might if you're a true comic book fan. If not, um, you can go to inlovewiththeprocess.com, and I've curated the episodes by subject material there. So you can go listen to all the photographer shows. You can go listen to all the director episodes. And we've got quite the lineup, man. I've been busy the past few years, especially during covid We've got some great guests, some amazing cinematographers on the show. And the show isn't just about filmmaking. We also get into all my favorite things in life. So I talk to a lot of barbecue chefs. I talk to like sleep study people. I even talk to uh, a battalion chief for Los Angeles Fire. It's really interesting stuff. We try to make the show as fun as possible. And it's essentially just me sitting down and having beers with people that I want to talk to. So welcome. Grab a beer. You want a glass of wine? Grab a small plate and try that orange cheese. I think that's like a, a British beer cheese. It's really good with the salami. Take a seat. David's on his way. Throw on those noise-canceling headphones. Crank them to 11. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the supersized, probably double episode of In Love With The Process. David, thanks for being on the show, dude. How are you? I'm great, thank you. Thank you for having me. This is like awesome. This is California's best. <laughs> Beautiful room, looking out onto cactus and blue sky. What What else do you have? I'm so excited, man. Yeah. I'm so excited to have met you. Um, I got introduced to you from Fujifilm. Super excited about that. And then uh, we had sort of like a pre-meeting where we went and hung out at the Smokehouse, which yes. I had never been to, and that uh, place is cool. That's history. Yeah. That's just, I think the Smokehouse was there before I started in the business. It was there in, like, forever. It's like, it's, I can imagine people, movie stars at Warner Brothers popping over there for lunch. <laughs> yeah. I think the, worst, the first time I ever went to shot at warner brothers we went there for lunch you know? <laughs> and it's it's never changed the insides never change the banquettes are the same so the cool. bars the same so and the cool. friendliness and the welcome is still the same so cool uh, right now i'm listening to tarantino's book that he wrote once upon a time in hollywood which right. is the expanse and the two characters sit down and have a drink at the smokehouse. And I was listening to Oh, my to God. <laughs> so, yeah, the place is super cool. It's like there's a handful of places, you know, because when we first moved out here, we were locked down for most of the time. So right. now that we're out and about, we're doing the, the, the like, adventure hunting right. for these spots. 
And I've been to bars all across the country, and there are just very specific bars that you can get here in Los Angeles. Yes. And that's one of them. Yes. Which is like. Well, I, I grew up in England. I had two uncles who owned pubs. Mm-hmm. That, to me, the smokehouse is my California pub. That's so cool, man. I yeah. love that place. Anytime you want to go get a beer there, I'm there. <laughs> you, you got it. You got it. Uh, all right. So uh, let's catch the listeners up because we have a lot of young folks that listen to this show. And I've been a fan of your work for years. And it's it's uh, funny when we were talking at the Smokehouse and you started to mention different movie posters that you had worked right. on. And these have been imprinted in my brain for years. Um, and... I think that uh, what you've done is you've had such a prolific career taking photographs of such a wide variety of material being on film sets. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and film sets, if you, just to go right back to the beginning, mm-hmm. I would say I, I had a box camera when I was about eight I had it for Christmas presents, my main Christmas present. I had two brothers and we never had much money, but when I got that box camera, I was like overjoyed. Mm-hmm. And I shot everything and developed my own film and stuff. But there was a day I was fascinated. You know, being in, we didn't have, like I say, we didn't have any money so in the family, so occasional treat big treat we go to the movies mm-hmm. and i was always captivated by the movies and i got to school i did this little village school it was a little church school next to the church it was a flint and red brick building mm-hmm. built in the roman era as, as the church was right yeah wow in fact the church was norman so and it was in a little street very narrow street outside the school and the schoolyard right next door to us. Mm-hmm. And there were some buildings opposite that kind of lent into the street. They were so old. I got to school one morning and there was a movie company setting up outside the school. Mm-hmm. I, and I, it was magic. And I, I was captivated. I spent more time that day on potty breaks than in my life. <laughs> and I would have, and I was like, hands up. Yeah. Yeah, James, yes, I'll go on. Uh, and I would toddle off, and I would, no, I would never go to the bathroom. I'd go straight into the graveyard and peer over gravestones watching these films film. It was a Rita Hayworth movie. I don't remember who wow. who the, the male star was, but it was somebody big. But I was. it was a small unit. Now, these days, the units are hundreds of people. I was going to ask, it was a very small. Oh, the units then were like 40-odd people. Yeah, yeah. But they were filming, I was watching, I mean, they had the arc like the big old arcs of brutes. Yeah. And, and I was watching the crew, and there's one man fascinated me was the still photographer. And I didn't know, never thought they have a still photographer. And he was there, he had a rolly flex, mm-hmm. and he was going around the set, and he was free. He wasn't limited to by what they, you know, little groups were doing. He was free to roam on his own. Mm. And I was captivated by him. And I quit school. I moved on to senior school from that school. Mm-hmm. And I quit school at 15. And I wrote to all the studios, include MGM number one. <laughs> and they all came back to me. Three, the three, four studios had labs, stills labs. Uh-huh. And that was the only thing I was interested in. They all came back to me and said, nah, you've got to be in the union. So I wrote to the union. Now, 
can't give you a union card until you've got a job. Oh. So I wrote back to the studios and only one answered. That was MGM. And they said, no, union's wrong. We can't give you a job until you've got a union card. So I got this on a Friday. In fact, I didn't get it. My dad picked it up from home and he then picked me up from, I had a job in the drawing office. Mm -hmm. I was so bad at that. But um, <laughs> well, like, I, couldn't, I couldn't draw a straight line with a ruler. <laughs> like, <laughs> what kind of stuff did they draw at the office? Um, electric, after being big these days, electric milk floats. Okay. And super, early supermarket fitness. Supermarkets were just coming in. Right. right? right. Just coming. That's how, how old I am. <laughs> <laughs> what's, the, what's the general store? I have no idea. <laughs> oh, that's kind of like a tourist place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but they were all general stores then. <laughs> yeah. uh, but anyway, um, my uncle owned a pub, mm -hmm. right, which was very close to a aircraft factory, de Havilland's, which built the first Comet and things like you know. So, um, I, my dad would pick me up and he'd take me home via Uncle Harry's pub, <laughs> which is the Compasses. Uh -huh. And the compasses are split, as it is today, into two bars, a big bar and then a little bar at the side. And I sat at the little bar, and my dad had given me this letter from MGM, which I was like, oh, excited to open. Yeah. So my uncle put a beer in front of me. Yeah, just 15 years old. That was uh, my uncle in the pub, I was saying. <laughs> and, and the cops used to have a beer around the back. Yeah. But the... Um, the day I opened this thing and it was final rejection from MGM. Oh. No, the union are wrong. We can't give you a job. Must have been devastating. Now, on the Friday night, there was in the pubs in those days, you respected people's seats, mm. right? And there's this old guy who used to come in on the Friday and he'd sit in this one stool at the end of this little bar, mm -hmm. have his two beers and go home. Every single Friday. I knew him as Tommy. Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So I was sitting in the stool next to him, a beer in front of me and a letter in front of me. And my life is over, yeah. done, finished, kaput. At 15. At 15, right. <laughs> yeah. So Tommy comes in, he has his beer, and he's almost through his second beer and he nudges me, he says, how old are you, kid? I said, I'm, I'm just approaching 16, sir. And he said, well you should be out with your mates on the Friday night having a great time. Yeah. What the hell's wrong with you? Yeah. And he obviously, he'd sit, the letter was in front of me, MGM, right, across the top. <laughs> so I give him my sad little end-of-life story, and he has said, look, I'm an old guy. Some of us old guys have wisdom that you kids don't have. You're, you know, you're growing, you'll learn these things. He said, let me think about it over. I'm tired now. It's been a busy week. Let me think about it over the weekend. And maybe, just maybe I can come up with some inspirational idea that helps you. Mm -hmm. He said, here's my number. And he writes his number down on a piece of paper torn off the barrow. And he gives it to me. I just put it in my pocket. I said, thank you very much, Sonny. Nice to talk to you. And off he goes. And I go home and say, Monday, I go into my drawing office <laughs> And I walked straight into a huge bollocking, telling off, you did it all wrong on Friday. All the tracings you did for the chassis are bent. You can't drive a vehicle like that. 
<laughs> so I'm going out for the day. This is, you know, I worked with one guy. He was the, the head draftsman. Yeah. He said, I'm going out for the day. He said, you, he said, I know you don't want to be here. Yeah. You came, youth employment sent you here. You don't want to do this. You want to be a photographer. We've talked about that. He said, look, you've got two weeks. Get yourself a job in photography or you're fired. <laughs> no doubt about it. You ain't here in two weeks' time of your own volition. We're going to say goodbye. Amazing. Right? So he goes out for the day and I set, I've set up the drawing board to again redo Friday's work. Mm-hmm. And I was so depressed and miserable. And I, and I took my jacket off and you know, I, my pocket, I found his phone number. I thought, yeah, he's right. Tommy's right. What have I got to lose? Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I pick up the phone. Girl answers the phone. I get this, right? This is like winning the jackpot. Girl answers the phone and says, this is the MGM still photography department. Can I help you? Amazing. And I said, um, is Tommy there? She said, is that David? I said, yes. Yeah. Well, he's got, actually, he's not available right now, but he set you up with a meeting with the head photographer at 10 o'clock tomorrow morning. Can you be here? <laughs> Um, yeah. <laughs> I started at MGM the following week. Okay, okay. So the guy who sat next to you at the bar who we, just randomly offered you advice. He was the head printer in the MGM still photo lab and they were looking for a trainee. Wow. I mean, that's, because it was the days of national service, mm-hmm. the, the trainee they had had been called up. Wow. So he had to go. Right. Wow. I mean, just, I I love that story for multiple reasons. One, you had two amazing men in your life that, that helped get you to where you were. The guy at the bar, obviously, who was very clever (laughs) about it, you know, and it was an interesting way of him sort of vetting you to find out if you'd call, if you were really interested. Yeah. If you, no, if you, yeah, exactly. If you're just depressed, like that. You're yeah. a young kid. He I don't care what I want to do. So yeah. yeah, that's so he's checking your drive, and then your boss at the time. Just, yeah, he he knew. He yeah. was like, yeah, you know, amazing. Jeff Hall, his name was it's like amazing. It's like, it's incredible. So then, okay, so that's where you started. That's, that's where it started. That's where it started. Yeah. Oh my god, dude! So fifteen. Yeah. Well, I was sixteen by now. Sixteen. I was, yeah, I left school at fifteen. Took me a year working in this other. <laughs> screwing up electric vehicles. Um, so, okay, so then now you're you're at MGM. Now you're at MGM. So MGM. What happens? I was under the head of the department was a guy named Davis Bolton, mm-hmm. who eventually became a DP himself, and he was, which was funny because he was then prepping to do Ben Hur. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was going to go out and be head photographer, of, like four photographers on Ben Hur in Rome. Wow. And one of the first things I did with him was we were set up an 8x10 Gandolfi camera in the studio. Mm-hmm. And we had to photograph all the Ben Hur costumes plus swatches of material on 8x10 color. Is this, was this like a costume test to see how it worked? Oh, the, yeah, so they, the Hollywood wanted to see the colors, the swatches of the color, the real color, and the drawings of the outfit. So. Oh, wild. So <laughs> he said, you go get the cameras all set up there, right? Because I learned this idea in night school, and so I knew how to operate an 8x10, mainly. Um, <laughs> but 
you know, I was so excited. So I was like, I went in, I loaded all the double dart slides. I came in, we start, we shot till lunchtime. He said, okay, I'm going to lunch now. I said, you have some lunch, but before you go, uh-huh. could you clean out the back of the camera? Go, it's a bit dusty back there. So give it a blowout first before you go, right? And then we'll resume after lunch. So I said, yeah, and I take the focusing screen, all that rig off of the back of the camera, and there inside the bellows are 20 sheets of 8x10 film. I had fought, forgotten to put them in the grooves on the double dart slide, so every time you pull the slide out, the film fell into the camera. Oh, my God. It didn't give me any hassle about it. Just clean out the camera. Oh, my God. After lunch, he got back in, and he said, okay, did you load them right this time? Yes, sir, I did. He said, you felt right? Yes, sir, I did. <laughs> they won't fall out again. And there was like, I mean, that's like a lot of money yeah. <laughs> in those 8 by 10 sheets of film, right? Yeah. And a lot of time our morning but nothing more was said. I learned that lesson and learned it well. Yeah. But one of the one of the great th- moments as well in those first couple of weeks is that photographers, were, I, I was put in charge of mixing chemicals, making proof sheets on a contact printer and glazing prints and looking after supplies, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So when I was glazing prints one day and this photographer walks in to look at his work, and it was the man outside my school. The guy that you saw on the set? The guy the I saw on the set, his name was Johnny M.J. Oh and Johnny, beca- I mean, he, he, I looked at him and said, oh, so you were outside my school? I like, <laughs> yeah, like five years ago. Um, yeah, I remember, I remember the movie. I remember Abbott's Langley, yeah. He said, um, well, what do you want to do? I said, I want your job, yeah. right? Yeah. So Johnny would, at weekends, when they were filming weekends, you know, anywhere locally around London, uh-huh. he would take me on set with him. He would give me a Rolleiflex and say, pick an angle to shoot from you want. Don't get in front of the camera. Keep behind it and keep, and keep back a bit. Get sort of the general things we want to see behind the scenes as well, right? Sure. You know, not so much in those days because in those days, behind the scenes was for, almost forbidden because well, the studios didn't want to show how you made movies. They wanted to keep right. that magic of the movie. Right. It's only the days of paparazzi that that changed because suddenly all these pictures coming out of, hey, you know what? People are actually interested in what's happening behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah. So now it's as important as what's in front of the camera. Right. It's. I've always said it's like a double-edged sword. I always felt like, uh, for me, especially like behind-the-scenes video stuff going public, it was really Jurassic Park that kind of really shifted that. I think right. for the general public. And as a director these days, if you're going, <laughs> if you go to the gas station and filling up your pump, and the guy at the gas station is like, "I don't like the visual effects on that," it's like you guys know way too right, much. Yeah. You guys know way too much about it. Exactly. Yeah. 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 It's, exactly. yeah, it's true. But one one of the other things happens that we would have guest photographers coming in because MGM on in England then was huge well, it's a big yeah. studio it's yeah. a big name yeah but um there's a, several things happens what in my years there or not that long but i was there's there were two entrances there was the executive entrance which uh-huh. they, they went through the, the, the 
the building by the main gate, but they would go through a certain way. And there was the workers' entrance through all the time clocking machines. Eh? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I was clocking in, I think in my first few months, I was clocking in one morning and this tap on my shoulder. And I turned around and I looked down a little bit because <laughs> he was a short guy. And he said, what's your name? And I said, this is David James. He said, oh, what do you want to do, David? How long have you been there? And I, said, and I said, I want to be a still photographer. And he had a little chat with me. And he said, well, I wish you very, very good luck. He said, you're in the right place. That was Alfred Hitchcock. Are you serious? I'm serious. And I was, because I looked, he was a short guy, right? I looked down and Alfred Hitchcock bothered to say, hello, how are you? What do you want to do with your life? My God. I mean, it's like, there was some magic. Yeah? And another thing that for me was forever, ever grateful was that we would have these photographers coming in from Life Magazine, Look Magazine, Parry Match, all the big stuff. Mm-hmm. And whenever we had a photographer coming in for that, I would be pushed out as an assistant. Mm-hmm. I would assist them, I'd carry their camera bags, load film for them. And this was another magical thing that Dave Bolton set up because he could see that I was so enthusiastic that where I wanted to go, mm-hmm. apparently the trainee before me didn't care and was never sent out of the lab. Right. I was pushed out all the time to different sets with different photographers. Wow. But there's this guy named Bob Elkins who was from Life magazine. And they were doing In of the Six Happiness on the back lot. They'd been in, um, I know, somewhere, Arabia or somewhere shooting, but they were shooting. They built this village on the back lot. And it was a miserable gray autumn day in England, (laughs) when the clouds are just above your head. Uh And I was sitting on the bank overlooking the set with his camera bag things. And he came up and sat with me for a while because they were lighting. And, and I said, why do they put those orange filters in front of the lights? Because mm-hmm. I've been watching them light. And they're all lighting the arc lights, so big old brutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he said, oh, come in, boy. And he goes down and S- S- Freddie Young, who then became Sir Freddie Young, was the DP. Mm-hmm. And he was sitting, the camera was kind of high, he was sitting in his director-type chair right under the lens. And he said, Freddie, Sean man's got a question for you. And Freddie said, yeah, what is it? What, what is it? What's your name and what is it? And I, I said, I just wonder about the orange filters you put in front of the lights. Mm-hmm. He said, oh, get this young man a chair. So now I'm sitting next to Freddie Young, right? <laughs> oh, my God. And he said, okay, boys, kill the lights, all of them. Take the filters down. Oh, my God. So they kill everything. And he starts to light the set again from the back. And he explains to me what each light is doing, where it's coming through this alleyway, casting that shadow and casting the shadow. That, yes, the sun is over there as far as in my mind. So the shadows have to be in a certain way. Okay. He said, now it was all lit with white light. He said, now, what do you think? Do we need some warmth? Because mm-hmm. it's a, a Arabic. I said, yes, sir. Mm-hmm. And he said, okay, boys, from the back, put the filters back. And suddenly this, like, from the back of the set to the front, suddenly becomes warm, but in piece by piece. And he explains what each damn thing is doing. Oh my God. I mean, unfortunately, they don't have time. So, you know, in the studios in then, they have apprentices in different departments. 
And that all disappeared when studios became four wall. I, I listen to your stories and my heart breaks because this is what I always wanted myself is to be in a scenario like that. And it took, I eventually learned those things and I eventually met folks that I was able to, I feel, you feel like you're sneaking five minutes from people here and there and you're like, what's going on here and how are you doing this? But to sit there and have them, I'm just picturing exactly what you told me right. and the the learning that you must have had. Because whenever I show people how to light, it's the same move. It's like shut all the lights off, start with nothing, and then you can start to see it. And then the magical becomes a process that right. you can see. And you go, oh, I get it because that back there does this. And I get that light there and the shadow makes sense because of that. And then the warmth makes to be able for him to say, grab a chair for this guy and I you know. sit down. I know. It was magic. You know, un, un, like that's the kind of story that you, if someone was making a movie about someone that was learning about how yeah. to be in this business, that's the scene that would be in the right. movie. And we'd be watching it at home going, that never happens. That's Hollywood shit. Yeah. That's crazy. But also what's funny these days is that I've been, I filmed in England a lot since. Mm -hmm. And I, I did, um, Mission and um, Oblivion with Tom Cruise yeah. at Leaveson Studios, which are Warner Brothers Studios. Mm -hmm. That Leaveson Studios is on the site where the Havilland's Aircraft Factory was, and my uncle's pub, he's not there anymore, but it's still down the road. <laughs> and I thought, every time I go to Leaveson now to film, that I have to go down to Compasses for lunch. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, that was. I mean, that was. They were magical days. They really were. Amazing. And I, I think you know, these days, like, there's no apprenticeships. But this is where I applaud film schools, and I applaud the enthusiasm mm -hmm. into film. And I, I really applaud when these young groups get together to make films, and they teach themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, and mm -hmm. it's like that's where when anybody wants mentoring. I'm totally willing and available mm -hmm. because, and to go onto a set, you know, this is why I'm going to do this thing in, in Ireland. I will slow show slideshows to an audience of enthusiasts. And we can talk about how, how you like this or don't like that. Mm -hmm. I mean, like Billy Williams. I did Ken Russell movies with women in love, the music lovers. Mm hmm. And I did a film called Pope Joan with him, with Robert De Niro and Liv Ullman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I had to do a photo session, which is kind of like a time-lapse thing for the movie. Mm -hmm. And I had to go in my own studio at Pinewood. They had a photo studio then. Um, I had to go and light these things, right, these, with both actors. Mm -hmm. And I would you know, bring a Polaroid to Billy, and, and he would say, approve them. Because it's obviously they're going to be in his movie. Yeah, and and I and he said to me one day, he said, "You know, David, the secret of lighting." He says, first of all, you've done very well here because you have a candle in the shot, so you've made sure the light comes from that." He yeah. said, "But the secret of lighting is not what you light; it's what you don't light." Yeah, and that don't light gives you depth. Yep, and it was you know it was a great lesson. Yeah, I mean every time I worked on a set. Up till the day I retire, even now, if I go down and do specials on the movie, it's still fascinating to watch lighting. I'm, I am, yeah. we talked about this before. I'm obsessed with it. And oh. I fell into it really deep. And, and I, 
I learned more. I think I talked to you about this. I learned more from key grips, from a key grip, actually, than I did from anybody else. Yeah. And he was all about, like, I know that the gaffer gets all the attention because he turns on all these lights, but it's our job to shape these lights. It's our job exactly. To, exactly. to create the realism. Because whenever you turn on a light unit, it's an unnatural unit to begin with. Yeah. And so you're trying to take this unnatural source it's like the lighting that's in the house right now. We're getting a lot of bounce off of the houses across the street, which right. are adding color and adding texture to yeah. it. Yeah, it's all you need. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. It is all you need, and and you have one light over. I mean, you your side lit from the window. Yep. And you have one light in the corner, which is just lighting that corner. Yeah. It's doing nothing valuable, any more valuable than just lighting that corner and giving you depth. Yep. Yep. You know, because the piece in between is dark. Yep. And that is perfection. I love it, man. And then we have a color mix that's happening because we have the tungsten units. Right. Which are on dimmers, so it's nice and warm. And yeah. And we have the, which is our eyes are auto-white balancing the white right. from outside. But, but also the secret on in lighting is that you and I are sitting opposite to each other. You have that light over in the corner. of the light side light on your face my eyes go to you, yep. right? My eyes are helped going to you by that light in the corner because it's a direction. Yeah. You know, it's, and it's, it's totally, it just amazes me that so many people, and I've asked a lot lately, what does the word photograph mean? Mm -hmm. And they don't know. Hmm. They say, oh, it's a photograph. It's a, it's a picture. It's recorded by camera. No. Photo, and it's from the ancient Greek, photo is light, graph is a drawing. So you are drawing in light. If you think about that, when you're lighting something, you are drawing in light. Yeah. If you're an artist, you paint using light and shadow. Yeah. But you side of your mind, right? So imagine being a DP and you're saying, this, okay, then you're looking in the black room, okay, and the director says, okay, this has got the action here and there. You are already painting that room in light. Yeah. Right? With photograph, paint in light. Yeah. You know, which yeah. is, is fascinating. It's like it's, the whole thing makes you look at it differently. Yeah. No, I, I completely. And then if you go even further with that, then you're talking about how that light is then being processed through whatever the glass is in front of that camera. So whatever right. texturing that glass is going to give it, Whatever you know, flaring that glass will give it. Whatever distortion that glass gives that light, and then if you go even further, because when I started doing digital, I just hate how clean and crisp a lot of digital stuff is because it's unbelievable to me. And so at that point, I'm always putting either filtration in front of digital cameras or even like natural filtration. Maybe you're shooting through windows. Maybe you're shooting through fabrics. Just trying to get it to match my bad eyesight is basically what well, it is. Well, I, I got to say something. When, when, when digital first came out, I was enthralled because it was at the time when I'd had three mishaps okay. with film, okay. right? The first one I was doing was special – on a James Bond, Roger Moore, all the girls, mm -hmm. we went out to the publicist arranges. We wanted a rural setting, so we're shooting in England. We went out to Regent, to um, not Regent's Park, um, Richmond Park, right? Mm -hmm. And we had a whole area that was just set up for us hair, makeup, all that stuff. I was shooting on Hasselblad. 
Okay. Yep. All 220 film, doing beautiful setups, right? The film went back to MGM where I started. We're doing the processing. Mm-hmm. We put all the film in for processing, and I went back next day to look at it. And they were very embarrassed, as they should have been, because they had done a clean out of the tanks before they developed the film and redone the chemicals. So I said, oh, we we, we we thought we'd have all fresh chemicals. And it's like, their first tank, or the first development, then the first wash, the first wash was boiling water. Was boiling water? There was hardly any emulsion left on the film. My God. It was a whole session trashed. What do you feel when you go into that? Devastated. Yeah. Absolutely devastated because there's no comeback on it. Yeah, yeah. There's no right? backups. There's no. nothing. Yeah, yeah. So, and, and then I had other labs that would scratch the film, right? And you had these scratches all down it. Then I had another lab who I'd loved, right? Who I was shooting 35 mil film. And when they went to mount it in slides, they got they calibrated it wrong, so it mounted it halfway through every slide. Ugh. Again, the whole day's work gone. Just ruined. A&I, which was like the lab in Hollywood where you could get Kodachrome processed, mm-hmm. screwed up a whole shoot, whole day shoot, right? They did something wrong in development. The day digital came in, it was down to me. Yeah. It was totally there. And my first film on digital was Chicago. Oh, cool. Right. Who directed that? Was that Rob Bowman or something? Rob, Rob Marshall. Rob Marshall. Yes. That's it, Rob Marshall. Yes. And Dion Beebe was DP. Yeah, yeah. But, so we're shooting in Toronto. Where else would you shoot Chicago but in Toronto? <laughs> so the first day, we the first scenes, we had this big audience mm-hmm. and spotlights on the actors on the stage, the dancers, and – the exposure difference must have been now, huge. I was working with a lovely ph- Canadian photographer. She was a union standby for because it was Canadian union, not LA. Yeah. So Rafi, who's a sweetheart and, and a very, very good photographer, but she was like tearing her hair out because to get an exposure, she was shooting on tungsten ectochrome, mm-hmm. which is 160 rated. She had to rate at 320. You rate at 320, you push up the, the gradient curve. Yeah, yeah. Right? So you're increasing the contrast. Yeah. So, and I had told, it was the Weinstein Company um, <laughs> in New York, I said, I want to shoot digital. And they said, oh, can you shoot a film at digital? So I said, well, you know, Rafi's here. Let Rafi shoot the film. I'll shoot the digital. And I promise you, I'll send you some images in a couple of hours. Yeah. And I said, oh, you do? I said, yes, I can do that. Right. So my pictures, because of shooting digital, the gradation was so much better. Yeah. I got the faces of the audience. I got the right amount of light on the actors. And you could see they're under spotlights, but you still got all the details. Yeah. Rafi got nothing. She got everything blacked out except the faces of the stars on the stage. Right, because of the exposure. And, and I sent these, like, say, about three hours, I sent them to New York, and they came back and said, don't shoot film. We're now going to tell all our photographers on our future movies, shoot digital. Yeah, we don't want film. And to get them this fast, yeah. 
You know, and we, we had the situation with, with um, Rene Zellweger that we were doing a scene where she was crying. She just murdered her boyfriend or whatever. So, and the police are <laughs> in a little apartment. We're night shooting this in Toronto. And, that, and we got a call. Harvey Weinstein. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we all meet these people. Um, Harvey Weinstein wanted to see the next morning what she was going to look like in the final scene of the movie. Now, she's got blotchy. Her eyes are red. She's been tired, you know, crying. And he wants to see what she's going to look like in the final scene of the movie. I mean, come on. Come on, dude. But, and being with Canadian unions, which are, they were lovely guys, but they had their rules. Mm-hmm. They say lunch, every light went out. Generator went out. Everything went out. <laughs> and we're shooting in this tiny apartment in the arts area. So I said to Rennie, I said, go, do what you have to do. You know, she, she was going to go straight. She's not going to eat. She was going to go straight into makeup and then go clean up, do the best they could with her. Unreal. Put a little white hat on her, like in the costume. It was just a head and shoulders thing, right? But Harvey wanted that on his desk at nine o'clock in the morning. Did he say why? No, he just wanted to see it. And that was his demand, right? That's the way he was. Yeah. So I want it. I want it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. A bit like someone else. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so I went in and I said, okay, what the hell can I do? And I would, the only light was the continuity girl's desk lamp. And she was in a little side room and there was an orange street light coming through the window. Mm-hmm. Right? So <laughs> I started rummaging around because on my own, I found some blue gel, which I stuck over the window to take some of the orange out. Mm-hmm. I put the desk, I, I've put bounce cards around and I used the desk light into the bounce card. Mm-hmm. And then Rennie came in, we shot the pictures. She's still a bit blotchy underneath because she had to go back to the scene after that. Right? Yeah. Amazing. So I, I then left the set because there was n- nothing else I wanted on that scene particularly anyway. So I left the set. And I went back to my apartment I had, and I worked for three hours on Photoshop, retouching, filtering, uh-huh. and, and doing all that stuff. And I came out with a picture that was like, I took it back to the set to show Rennie before I was going to send it off. And she burst into tears. She said, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. Yeah. You have saved me. And, and the hair and makeup and people were like, oh, my God, this is awesome. Wow. It looked like a whole photo session. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I sent that to Harvey, and like, nobody came back on it. Yeah, but, but it was fine. And that's the way she looked for the final scene. You know, but it was like, but you, you meet these challenges, but digital – yeah, helped. Made it. And while I was there, and, and Rafi set up a thing with the Canadian Union photographers, and I brought up two girls from Supercolor Labs here in LA, mm-hmm. um, and they brought up some five feet high poster, you know, bust up poster size prints from my work on Chicago. And we had almost every union photographer in Canada turned up for that meeting. Wow. And then I was explaining to them how 
digital worked and and i picked up because in those days we used to burn the stuff onto cds right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so when i started off the thing i picked up a cd that was wrapped in cellophane and you out of the box i said this is the hardest part of doing digital getting the plastic wrapper off this <laughs> and they like well what and but they were staggered yeah and I actually, we did a test in front of them and I showed it on the computer screen and said, this is what you can do. I said, and Rafi was there and she said, yeah. And she explained about the light differentials that we were working that the digital covered it. Yeah, yeah. And, and I found it like digital was one of those things. When I shot film, I shot it for, you know, I did some magazine work. After I took a break from movies in my career. Yeah. I did some, and I worked for the Telegraph Color Supplement, and I used, I used to shoot Kodachrome 25. Mm-hmm. And they said, oh, okay, for us, you rate 25 at 40. And I talked to the technical guys, and they said, why is that? He said, because at 25, if you've got highlights on the transparency, they'll burn out. There'll be no detail. Shoot it at 40, those highlights will bring in, then our printer light can bring the rest up. Ah. Hmm. Very good. It's like shooting. You want to shoot black and white negative. You want to slightly overexpose it, not under, because you want those details. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. You can you can print through. Mm-hmm. You know, w- one of the things I did, which was a great. I mean, you jump back now. That's the beauty of this recording. This is great. Um, when, when I was at MGM, mm-hmm. I mean, we had an accident. <laughs> in the lab one day that I'd gone to lunch and forgot to switch off the tank washes for the prints. Mm-hmm. And they, they'd all spiraled themselves around the overflow. And I'd flooded the dark room. And we were above the electrical department, so I flooded the electrical department as well. <laughs> oh my God. So in the afternoon, they had all the lights out in the street, drying them all off. But they said, we needed washing anyway. So it, was like, <laughs> yeah, it all went down as a big joke. But yeah. um, one, of, one of the things that... Oh, I am jumping back in time, but I love it. Um, when there was one that I was now in the union, and say, and Davis Bolton called me in the office one day. He said, um, "There's an offer, and I think you should take it." Hmm. And this was on like a Tuesday. Mm-hmm. He said, "Otto Preminger is making a movie called Exodus. Oh wow! They're going to shoot in Israel and Cyprus, and they want." a couple of printers out there to print pictures for the photographers. Right. Because Otto, because in those days to get their film from Israel, Cyprus back to London for processing mm-hmm. and back again would have taken them a week and a half, two weeks. Right, right, right. Right. So they wanted to have a lab there and, and Otto had ones like had four or five photographers on the movie. You know, some big guys from big magazines and things, and he wanted them to shoot what he was shooting, and then he could look at the stills the next morning. Oh, right? because then he didn't have to wait for the. He didn't have to wait. No, but he could remind him what he shot. Okay. Okay. Right? But um, so they said, um, Dave said, I think you should take it. I think, you know, by this time I was printing anyway. And I was, you know, I was good. I love printing. Mm-hmm. So he said, I think you should take it. So they called up and, and they, and the offer came back. Yes, we'd love him. Can he come out on Saturday? 
And I was in the union two weeks' notice. What does that mean? You had to. You could not leave the job without giving two weeks' notice. By this time, it's a bit too late. Oh. The only way you could get out was to be fired. And then the studio wanted to fire you. It's two weeks' notice, right? <laughs> or if they wanted to terminate your employment, it's two weeks' notice. Yeah. So they just said, oh, it's not going to work. And then I went back to work, and he went. And then I got a call from the office um would you go to George C. Cat's office, please, in, uh-huh. in admin? George C. Cat was the studio manager. Okay. All right, so I went over there, and, and I work in the office, and George C. Cat is sitting there with his arms folded behind his big ornate desk with his bookshelves <laughs> behind him. Davis was looking out the window. Mm-hmm. All right, and I walk in, and, and George says, um, David, we were willing to... Ignore and get over the fact that you flooded the dark rooms. <laughs> he said, but it costs a lot because uh-huh. the electrical department had to strip everything out and dry it all off and clean everything. He said, and I was, I was, I said, happily to ignore it because you learnt your lesson. He said, but unfortunately, MGM in Hollywood say a head has to roll. <laughs> You're fired. You had 10 minutes to get off the property, go and get your stuff and leave. And he stood up, stuck his hand out saying, congratulations and the very best to you, boy. Uh, and Dave Bolton turned around from the window, was grinning his head off. And I said, and I didn't know what to say. I said, I don't have a passport. And he said, it's arranged. You go straight to the travel department. David will shoot your headshots right now. Go straight to the travel department. They'll have your passport by Friday. But you need to get home and get a letter from your mum and dad saying you can go because you're only, you know, I was just 18. Oh, my God. I mean, almost 18. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So anyway, Friday, I'm on the flight to Israel. Oh, my God. Right? But here, here's another son, funny side story is that the studio bought two seats <laughs> adjacent, right? One seat, I had about 40,000, 50,000 feet of film right <laughs> and obviously unexposed film yep to take to the production and i got to haifa airport and the guy standing there armed uh-huh. the customs guy is a huge guy right and his arms folded and he says open those cans i said no I'm not opening those cans that's yeah unexposed film you open those cans it's ruined open those cans right i said no so he's and he's like he's getting his adjusting his pistol so i sat on the cans i absolutely sat on them and said no i will not open these cans <laughs> and and i said and i got the, the my movement order out i said and I like the, the phone number for the office, right? I said, phone that number. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not moving. I'm sitting on these cans, right? Mm-hmm. And I just got belligerent. Maybe I'd had a couple of beers on the planes. Or <laughs> um, yeah, right. So I refused because I knew they'd be ruined. If yeah, they, yeah. Right? So they went off and this guy started staring me down. He's like, would not. He was like a huge battlefield. Earth. But he was like, 
suddenly the, the head of the customs comes running in and says, oh, I said something. And then the whisper in the sky says, oh, he melts. <laughs> he suddenly became a little man. Right? Yeah, yeah. But suddenly then there's like these custom guys carrying the film to the car for me. Yeah. Right? And, and I got, literally got escorted off, this, off the airport with security, right? Got to the hotel and Eva Munley, who was the production manager there, sure. was welcoming me and thanking me like, Hands out! Oh, thank you for you know for what you yeah, did. Yeah, yeah, your value and goes I, up. I, I, I said, yeah. so what happened? She said, she went. I said, I went to Otto Premijo's at dinner and told him what was happening. He got straight on the phone to Ben Gurion, the prime president of Israel, oh and he phoned the customs guys. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, does have her power. <laughs> but I, I, I went to that story because I was talking about printing. One of the great lessons i had yeah was that the way we would do it the guys would take their photographs they'd come in at the end of the day the head of our department would develop the film and then this other guy from shepperton and i would make a proof sheet the photographers would come in before they went to dinner look at their proof sheets yeah and make their selects or they would you know have dinner and make their selects and we would then print 16 by 20 prints. I mean, huge fiber prints, double weight fiber, right? Nothing, no eight by 10 glosses here. <laughs> it, was, it was this stuff. And, and they, they would then, they would come back in the morning, take them to breakfast with them and show premature at breakfast. Right, mm -hmm. that was the way. Where, and then we had another team in the daytime, which were four Israeli girls who would do all the eight by tens for the studio. But I worked, and I had the fortunate thing to click off with John Mealy, who's John Mealy, which is J J G J O N. But he was a famous. And you could Google him now, right? but he was a famous Life magazine photographer. Oh, okay. I don't know. I'm but he, uh, where a lot of other photographers just mark their sheets and then go away, John would come and sit with me over my shoulder for an hour or so before he went to bed. Mm -hmm. And he would say, well, dodge this, burn that, pull this, do that. And he would teach me, you know, as well as that, getting what he wanted, I learned so much about gradation and and where the where you can on a print you can make the eye focus on one point yeah you know and it was magical and there's those days like again it's a lesson you can't buy
All right. I want to take a second to show some love to the men and women that make the show possible. I'm talking about the sponsors, the people that support the show. I'm talking about the companies uh, that make the equipment that I use daily to make my work. Um, and first up, I want to thank the folks over at Fujifilm, uh, specifically Michael over at Fujifilm and Victor over at Fujifilm. Um, without them, today's episode wouldn't happen. I wouldn't have met David. Um, and they continue to support the show. They will support the show through the end of the year. Um, financially, they're helping us out, but also they've given us equipment and gear, and uh, they will be helping us get some stuff to you guys as well. Um, I shoot with Fujifilm now. Gina just shot with Fujifilm. She loves their new medium camera, their new medium format camera. She's shooting with the GFX 100S. I just saw some of the stuff she did for a magazine last week, and it looks amazing. Uh, and I have been using the Fujifilm H. Uh, 2S, the X-H2S. Uh, I use that for some video as well as stills. I love the lenses on it. I love the ability to do street shooting. Um, and the thing that Gina and I were talking about last week is uh, the autofocus feature on these cameras is amazing. Uh, all of her photos were in focus, clean and crisp. Uh, it doesn't matter the light situation. The autofocus setup works well in low light situation. It actually not only has like facial recognition stuff, but it also is smart enough to understand when someone's wearing glasses, smart enough to understand like hair that's running in front of someone's face. And what I really like is that you can do object tracking as well, which is very useful when you're uh, shooting product photography or if you're doing like handheld moves and you want to track to a specific object. It's wild, man. You can dial in the speeds of it. It's really fucking cool. This is an ultra, like the, uh, what is it? The, I always forget the numbers, the X-H2S. I love that camera. It's called Mike's camera. My camera uh, is a great one to use if you're filming yourself. Let's say you're an influencer, the screen will flip so you can see it. With that auto tracking, that autofocus tracking, it's very useful. Um, and all of the cameras, including their medium format one, they all come with LUTs really great looks inside of it that you can bake onto your JPEG images or you can uh, have referenced in your raw files that you shoot. Um, so you can shoot black and white. They have filtration for all of the classic film stocks that we talk about, David and I talk about on the show. Um, but also, um, it also has like in-camera film grain stuff. Gina, you really like the film grain, right? Yeah. What setting are you shooting on? Are you shooting high or medium or low? Strong and high? Yeah. Yeah. It's really cool stuff. Very natural feeling, grain, um, which I think is important because these cameras are so crisp and clean that it helps add that sort of organic element to it that our eyes are used to seeing. So it smooths the edges and it feels a little bit more approachable. You know what I mean? Um, I can't say enough great stuff about Fujifilm. Uh, be ready to hear some more as we start to interview some of their filmmakers. We start to interview some photographers that work with them. And uh, big shout out to you guys for making today possible. Also supporting the show, if you're someone that is photo editing, right? And you need a new computer. Your old computer can't handle these large PSB files, right? Isn't that what they call the large Photoshop files? Yeah, PSBs, right? You're starting to shoot 
uh, images, raw images that are coming out of camera at over 250 megs. You start putting multiple layers on that, masks on that. Next thing you know, your file sizes are over two gigs large. Um, and you can't no longer have that be a PSD. You got to move to those PSB files. They become harder to load in Photoshop. Uh, run, they become harder to run out. If you're using smart layers, oh, it's a fucking nightmare. So you just need a great graphics card. You need some RAM and you need a good processor. And your old MacBook Pro isn't working for you. Your old, your old uh, desktop isn't working for you. And it's time to go back out to the market. I suggest you go buy a PC. I do. Why? Uh, because they are affordable. They're competitive. They're upgradable. And I get it. You don't want to build your own. It's a scary thing to try to build your own computer. What hardware goes with what? Are we sure that the newest graphics card is going to do shit for the old program I'm using? I don't know. I felt the same way until I found Puget Systems. Go to PugetSystems.com. These guys build computers based upon the software you're going to use. These guys have benchmark tested all the new hardware out there on the market. They put it to the test. They know what works well. They know what's going to happen when we get these software updates. They know how to work around that stuff. They know how to hook you up with systems that will talk and write to Mac files, right? Mac folder structure. So that way, when you're working with people that haven't quite caught up yet, and they're still on the old Mac machines, you can be uh, going back and forth with their drives. No problem whatsoever. I love my Puget system. I've got two. I've got a new one on the way. Um, and uh, if you are a company that is in, maybe you're a, a finishing company, a touch-up company, maybe you're a post-production, an editing company, and you're now at the point where you need more editing base, you need to upgrade all your material. Go talk to Puget Systems. Go get a quote from them. Go talk to them. Get a con Go get a consultation from them and see how well they do. See if it changes your perception of this. I think it's going to save you money. I think you're going to build systems that work for you. That's what I like about Puget Systems. So go to PugetSystems.com and check it all out. Uh, as we sit around and eat our food in today's episode, I want to give a big shout out to Bear Republic, our first beer sponsor on the show. Um, Bear Republic Brewing Company was founded in 1995. Their original brewery is located just off the downtown square of Heldsburg, California, where they have created and sometimes stumbled upon some of their favorite beer recipes. Ricardo's Red Rocket Ale, Racer 5 IPA, and many others began in that very brew house. Uh, I'm excited about this renaissance, this beer renaissance that we're having right now. It is the best time to be a beer drinker in America. There's over 9,000 breweries out there right now, privately owned, like small business. People that love beer is putting things together. I love it, man. And what do I love about beer? What am I drinking these days? I mean, I love a good IPA, but I don't do those much because we're out here in California. So I'm always doing like a Pilsner or I'm doing like a Czech. I'm doing something light, maybe some weedy stuff. I love that. And obviously this ad read is for anybody that is the legal drinking age. So if you're not 21 yet, if you guys are young and you're, you're getting there, then you'll, you're almost there. Hang out. And when you do get there, drink responsibly. And by responsibly, I don't just mean don't get drunk and go drive because that's a waste of your life. That'll end everything. But I think more importantly, think about how flavor profiles work. Think about what you're pairing your beer with. It isn't always about going to get a 30 rack of the cheapest thing in the, in the world and pounding that thing down. You'll get over that. You start crossing into your mid-20s, you'll be like, ah, I'm done with that. 
So what's next? Well, head on over to Bear Republic and check out all their small batches. Maybe buy some of them. You can buy them online. If you're in California, they'll ship them to you. And if you're not in California, they'll let you know where you can get those beers. And try some stuff out. I Honestly, I'm going to be honest with you. I think that I'm more... <laughs> oftentimes, I choose my beer based upon the graphics on the outside of the can. I really do. I have so much fun drinking beer. I have so much fun going to bars and enjoying it. And uh, check out Bear Republic. Go to bearrepublic.com. We have a promo code, which is PROCESS15. If you use that promo code PROCESS15, you'll get 15% off the entire store, uh, including both beer and merch at bearrepublic.com. Uh, let's see. Lastly, let's see. Who else do we got going on here? Um, also, Jambox. Jambox.io. If you are somebody that uh, cuts videos, if you have your podcast and you're looking for licensed music, Jambox.io has the best licensed music out there. 100%. I'm honestly telling you this. Using Jambox has changed my, my career. It has helped me book new clients. I am able to create epic sounding Michael Bay feeling pieces uh, with licensed music. And uh, they have a bunch of different subscription options. If you head on over to their website, I use their $19.99 commercial plan, but I know they have uh, even more discounted plan for folks that are just doing it for uh, podcasts, web streams, YouTube. Um, but at the commercial plan, I get access not only to their entire library of music, but their sound effects library and their stems. So I can actually take songs, break it down to stems, just listen to the drums, listen to the guitars, and build it and do an edit that fits my time for my edit, which is great. And then for students, they have like a six bucks a month thing as well, which you can use for film festivals, student pieces, projects, etc. Now, if you don't want a subscription, if you don't want to go into another subscription game, you can actually license songs individually. They're very affordable. Although there hits a point where it's like, if you're going to just license, just buy your subscription. It's almost the same. Um, so jambox.io, head over there now and just listen to their library of music. I've got a playlist up there. Go check out all their synthwave stuff. Fucking really great stuff. And they have a really great opera section and classical music section, which is very hard to find good stuff at that sort of music licensing price. Jambox.io, best place to find music. Let it change your work today. Um, that is that. That is everybody. So uh, let's get back to it with David. This is the thing about um, modern, a lot of modern 
I don't want to call them kids, but a lot of modern people that I deal with where they want to get, they have this idea like, hey, I want to be an onset photographer. And then they want to be thrust into that position and they want to immediately do that uh, position. And what you're what you're missing when you don't, I think a lot of people look down on like assistant positions. A lot of people look down on like a printing position. Right. But what you're learning from these scenarios is all this, like you're getting one-on-one with like, experience yeah. valuable yes. stuff and, and and things you're teaching yourself doing it yeah you know it's just just a, i mean I've, i'm working on on the stuff right now on highlander uh-huh. right because highlander is going to be re-released later this year so what are you going back through old negatives or something? yeah and, and they sent me and i shot it in black and you know a lot of color negative transparencies and black and white Wow. And I got like a whole bunch from the archives. They were sent, kindly sent over from Canal Plus. Mm-hmm. But there were the negatives, but scanned. So you look at them and they say, oh, there's hardly anything here. They say, but then you're looking at this negative and you then start working on it. And mm-hmm. you think, oh, yeah, I remember how I did this. Like dodging, burning, but you could do it all on Photoshop, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you can because you loop little areas like I work on this. And it's like, but you learn everything you learn in the dark room. Yes, you can use in Photoshop. Yes, yes, you know, which is it's awesome. And, and you learn about gradation. You learn about this. You learn about focus of to a point on the frame. Yes, and there's things. But just jumping to another quick story with Otto Preminger, and again, it was a huge lesson to me. And probably one one of I mean, it's like three or four lessons that. I will always relate back to uh, one is about motor drive, so we'll talk about it in a minute. Yeah. But this was with I got a chance to, I was doing um, Music Lovers with Ken Russell, okay. uh, Richard Chamberlain about the life of Tchaikovsky. Mm-hmm. And I got this call. Um, Otto Preminger would like to meet with you because mm-hmm. I'd done Women in Love. I had, you know, done some really good visual movies. Um, we'd like to meet with you. Can you meet at the Dorchester Hotel at 8 o'clock this evening? Mm-hmm. And I was in the New Forest in Hampshire, covered in mud from <laughs> uh, being in plough fields all day. <laughs> Working hard, yes. Like, enjoying myself. Yes. <laughs> so I and I, I rushed. I didn't have time to change. I picked up my box of pictures, which was like a... Eleven, you know, fifty, sixteen by twenty box, Kodak box, and I rushed to the Dorchester. And when I my car was got mud on it, and I pulled up at the front door, and the doorman looked down at me in his suit and his hat, and he said, um, "Park it around the back." <laughs> <laughs> so I had the street park, and I went back in, and they I got really frowned upon walking with muddy jeans and things through the lobby. But then, then someone's like, it's not, oh, "Excuse me, sir, where are you going?" Um, I've appointment mr Pratt. oh yes sir that way yeah, yeah. Uh, so anyway i walk in and there's otto in a dinner suit uh, black dinner black tie the whole thing and a whole group of guys all dressed the same i mean <laughs> look like a casting um otto sits there and we're sitting in a circle now and otto looks through my pictures and he, he like you know he was, he was impressed yeah but then is this one friend of his hungarian said do you always turn up for an important meeting with someone like Mr. Preminger looking like that. And Otto turned on and said, Mr. James is the only person here 
correctly dressed for what he's doing. Oh. And I thought, oh my God, thank you. <laughs> but, so I get the film, is Bunny Lake is Missing. Right? Yeah. And we're shooting, we were actually night shooting for about a week after production started. We're night shooting in a pub in Kilburn in North London. Yep. And big bar. Right? Um, I mean, somebody, some actor had just poked his head in the door saying, Otto Premiership should be hit with a hammer on the head. And, and disappears and I said what <laughs> <laughs> somebody who didn't get a job obviously um, anyway so I'm at one side we just finished the lineup for the night and I'm at one side of the set and Bill Batchelor our publicist and the way and he was an old MGM publicist right sure he said to me at the beginning he said I pick the stills I show them to Mr. Premier you have nothing to do with it you shoot right and he was a really old-fashioned guy. Mm-hmm. So he walks in. I see him walk in with an 8 by 10 yellow box. And he gives them to Otto. And Otto stands the other side of the bar. He puts them against his chest. And he lifts the lid. And he starts pulling the prints up, sticking them under his chin. And then he gets about five or six of them. And he stops. And he takes the whole pack. And there's, there's probably 50, 60, but he tears them in half. He throws them at Bill Batchelor and says, don't ever show me this shit again. What? And I thought, oh, it's the end of my career. Yeah. I don't don't know what pictures he's picked uh, because he was in control. I thought that's the way it was. I mean, it wasn't the way I was with Ken Russell. I would pick my own pictures, but this is him, Jim. Yeah. So I go outside and I said, Bill, what, what? Shall I, am I fired? Shall I resign? I don't know what to do. And he says, Bill says, I, it's never happened to me in my life. Never happened. This is terrible, terrible. And then this guy named Alexander Powell, who is the same guy who in that circle questioned my dress, my, what I turned up in. Alex comes out. Alex was a photographer uh-huh. right, from Hungary who got Otto Preminger out of Hungary when it was communist controlled, he got him out somehow, got him into Hollywood and set him up in Hollywood. So Alex and Otto were big buddies. Of course. And obviously Alex was also covering the movie as a photographer, Mm -hmm, right? But mm -hmm. on his way. And very welcome. But he came out and he took the prints off Bill and he said, and he looked at me, he says, you don't ever let this man pick your pictures. And Bill's like, <laughs> he says, they're your pictures and they're too small. He says, there's nothing wrong with them. They're too small. He said, you go, when we wrap tonight, just do your night's work. When we wrap, go to your lab. We know you can print. We remember you. Yeah. He said, you do big prints. 15, I think it was 15 by 12 or something. You know, so That's wild. Double weight unglazed 10 max this is too many yeah so 10 max right so i do that we wrap shooting otto says nothing to me the rest of the night <laughs> and i then go into the lab and i make i say give me a, I a dark room on my own give me paper and leave and my, my negatives and leave me to it so i'm, I'm there for like five hours yeah. And I and I pick through the site, and I make 
10 prints. Right. And they were over the, our next night, we were in a big stately type house in Hampstead, mm-hmm. North London. Mm-hmm. And I go in onto the set again. They're just finishing the lineup, and I have this big box under my arm, Kodak box, nice big yellow box. And Otto looks at me and says, you have something to show me. Yeah. <laughs> I said, yes, I do. I'm terrified, right? <laughs> right? Absolutely. <laughs> right. Terrified. Everything that you've been through so yeah, far. Yeah. So, so he says, you'll come with me. <laughs> so we go to another room, which is the library of the house, where in this Otto's office for the night. Sure. And he says, you lay your prints on the floor. I'm going for the pee-pee. I'll be back. <laughs> so I lay my prints out on the floor. And, he's, and he comes in, and there's a desk. They're on the floor in front of the fire. There's a desk behind us. And he pulls me back on his, on the desk. We squat there. He puts his arm on my shoulder. And he's talking to me to, like a dad. And he says, I know these are the same pictures I saw last night. He says, but look at them. These pictures sell my movie. Last night, he said, those little 8 by 10 glosses, they go on the photo editor's desk and somebody comes in, prints like these, stick them on top. The only person who sees yours is clean and when she's chucking them in the trash. He said, this sells my movie. He said, you are not here to make my movie. You're here to sell my movie. He said, imagine you go into a store and you want to buy a can of beans. Yeah. And there's a whole aisle and it's cans of beans in silver tins. Right. It just says beans, beans, beans. Now, you put labels on those beans. Which one do you go for first? Because you know nothing about beans. So you go for the best looking label. Yeah. He says, that's what you're doing. You're putting a label on my movie and it's got to be a damn good looking label. And then he turned out, we, we get back on the set later, and he says, oh, Mr. James, you worked hard last night and today. Go home. Alex can cover the set tonight. And Alex says, well, me? <laughs> yes, Alex, you. He, is, he needs a rest. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, like, it's, it's, it's what you're there for. You're there to sell the movie. You're not there to make it. Right. Sell it. Right. As the set photographer. As the set photographer. That's so great because I was going to I was going to talk to you about that because I think a lot of people when they think of behind the scenes photographers these days they're just like okay so this is people that are doing stuff for social media this is people that are just sort of dumping it out but you forget that that was the original intent was that these photographs were the way that the movie was sold yeah exactly because you your photos were then used for movie posters your photos were then used for promotions and press. Yeah. And all that I got, I got one of the strangest compliments from the studio once. That, that it was a small movie I'd done. I can't remember. It was some, it was somebody had, they, in those days, they used to put like boards outside the theater showing stills. Right? Sure, sure, sure. Um, unfortunately, that's gone now. But um, somebody wrote into the studio because they forwarded, it was somebody in the studio that I'd met somewhere in the past. They forwarded me this letter saying, this woman had written in saying, I went to see this movie because of the stills. The movie was terrible. The stills were great. But you should be sued. (laughs) (laughs) So I said, yeah, I take that as a compliment. Thank you. (laughs) So so he was having you print them bigger just because it was a bigger. It was a sale. It was was about eye-catching. 
Yes. They sell that moment, you know. Yes. And they say, but then if you keep that in your mind, you're there to sell the movie, not make it. Yep. But you know, but then you, how do you sell it? There's sometimes there's images you can't get. The camera positions in the place you can't get. So you have to interpret it. You know, I I did as a as a magical movie. I did Fiddler on the Roof with Norma Jewison, mm -hmm. which was awesome. And Norman and I got on so well together that I would like look at his angle and then I would also, I'd cover that. Then I'd cover my angle and he would come and look at my angle <laughs> and often say, oh, let's put a camera over here as well, right? <laughs> so, and we, we had a laugh about it. I, I did Jesus Christ Superstar with him in Israel. Yeah. And I actually, I had a 1968 D-type Jaguar, a white one. I so love that car. I, I used to polish the motor. You, you lifted the van and they were gleaming, right? No oil on my car, baby. It was like perfect. <laughs> but um, we were doing the final number, uh -huh. you know, big Jesus Christ Superstar. We're night shooting in Nazareth in the Roman auditorium. Crazy. Which is unbelievable. But what was weird is that we had all our stories like that. So and the Israeli jets were using our lit location as their grouping point to go off and bomb the Golan Heights. Oh, my God. <laughs> we heard the jets go, over the, and then there's somebody whoosh, and they've gone, and then a few seconds later, boom, boom, the ground's bouncing oh because the bombs God. are going off. Right? Oh, my God. And they say, some of the crew are getting freaked, like, are we going to be bombed in a minute? Yeah. But it was like, you know, it was kind of, it was almost magic. But there was the, the way we were shooting the scene. They had a big Titan crane, which is a you know a Titan is a, not these days where the camera's mounted on the crane all on its own. The Titan had the operator behind the lens. Mm -hmm. They had the focus puller. They had the DP often sitting up above them all. In yeah, the these are those. These are those. Uh, yeah. famous cranes that have the seats that we yeah, see. In the exactly. Old and, yeah, exactly. And yeah. and then in fact, there's one of my photographs of, from Jesus Christ Superstar where you're looking, Jesus is on the cross, and I'm looking up at him, and then the camera is right over his head looking down, and Norman Jewison's beside the camera looking down at it. Mm -hmm. uh, so, I mean, that's one of my favorites of that thing. But anyway, um, <laughs> so, and Norman's on the crane as well, and they're like, they had a huge amount of lead weights on the back, and that big grips like, you know, swinging this thing around <laughs> but the thing was that jesus is on the stage the angels are all in the seating around the stage mm -hmm. and this is jesus christ superstar and judas who's questioning jesus is on the platform in front of the camera so wherever the camera goes judas goes with it but he turns to the camera starts singing to the camera say jesus christ superstar and the focus would be on him and then he would turn to look at Jesus and the focus will bring back to Jesus. Mm -hmm. Lovely. Mm -hmm. Not for me. <laughs> yeah, because you can't be on I there. I can't be on there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also because we're night shooting, sorry, it's all lit, but I don't want to sell the movie, as Otto says, I don't want a, out of a picture of Judas, of Judas pin sharp, Jesus, where a focus in the background, Yeah, right. which is what you get. Yeah, right. So I thought, okay, I would do it my way. I'm not going to do nothing. So I was shooting with Nikons then. You could take the viewfinder off. So they had all the arc lights and studio lighting 
all around the, the rim of the auditorium. Mm-hmm. So I got on the floor in the dirt and put a star filter on the lens, and I'm shooting up at Jesus with all these stars from the lights. Stars out. Yeah, and yeah. I shoot up at the angels with all these stars of light. Right? Yeah, Judas can look after himself because I'm not going to get that. <laughs> He's on the green. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I'm doing this, and then they come down to reload, and Norman says, comes over, as he often does with me. And I've, I'll tell you about the Jaguar. Yeah. Norman loved my car so much he wouldn't drive with anyone else. He'd drive to and from those set with me, right? <laughs> so those are the days, uh, little smaller crews. Uh, yeah. But um, anyway, so he comes down and says, move over. What are, you, what are you doing down there? And and looks and he says, oh, my God. Dougie, said DP, right? we got a star filter. He says, yes, of course you have a car filter. Well, get that damn camera off the crane. Get it down here in the soil with David. We're reshooting the scene again. <laughs> so we shot. We lost the whole night shooting because we reshot the scene using the movie lights as our start. Yeah. And it made it so theatrical. Yeah. And it was perfect. And it's also saved my life because my stills were useful. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Okay, so then the two lessons there are your mindset is, I need to sell this film. So right. you're taking full advice. You understand technically what they're doing on the crane, and you understand what they're shooting. Yeah. And you're like, that's not going to be a good press image. Or it's not going to sell the movie. Yeah. And so then you are rearranging for that. But then at the same token, you're influencing the actual film itself. This is interesting because... We've talked about this further, how you've worked with other directors that have also been influenced by your camera placement. Yeah, because, it's uh, you know, you are there. You're not there to make the movie. You're there to contribute whatever you can to it. Right. right? You, you, you can do, if they believe in your talent and you are in for what they're doing, because you enjoy every moment of what they're doing. You know? Yeah. I mean, you have to research. I always research a movie before I start doing it. What do you do? What do you mean for research? Well, I was asked to do, first of all, Schindler's List. Right. right? And I, I, I looked at pictures of that era, and it was like when Steven Spielberg started to see the images, he said, oh, David, this is some Roman Vishniak. And I thought, oh, who's Roman Vishniak? So I, I looked him up, and he was in the ghettos at that time. He was the ghetto photographer. Oh, okay. Right, and I just struck him by, whoa, wow, okay. I then did Saving Private Ryan. Mm-hmm. And by this time, I thought, you know what? Yeah, research what you're shooting. And, and it's like, really, really go into it. Don't, don't just hit a subject because the director's research, so the art director, designers of re- They've obviously they've researched, but what are you going to research as a right. photographer? Right. You're not just going to copy everything they shoot, right. or go in with your own style and start right. to implant yeah. your own style. Yeah. On it. yeah, yeah. So when I did Private Ryan, I thought, okay, I want my stuff to look real. I want it to look like war. I don't want it to look like a movie. Mm-hmm. So I I got hold of. I'd always admired Robert Kappa's work. Mm-hmm. And I was fascinated by the picture, which there's a lot of dispute about whether he posed it or it was for real with the soldier from the Spanish Civil War falling. Right, right. right? And 
it, it was, it's been proven since because of the soldier's brother that it was for real. But um, Kappa first went to the Spanish Civil War and shot everything perfectly. <laughs> and he sent the film back to Paris by train. And he, eventually he went back to Paris to look at it. And he was, and in his book is called Slightly Out of Focus, and it's an awesome, awesome book. Mm -hmm. He said he was horrified. His stills looked like movie stills. And I thought, it's exactly what I don't want my stills to look like movie stills. Because he's glorifying war at that point. Yeah. yeah. So he went back and he stopped worrying about getting the exposure absolutely right every time. He was a meter. You know, it's like, he, he stopped worrying about, oh, I can't shoot this till it's sharp. He sees some action, he'd pick it up and run with it. Right? And, he, and he'd run and he'd shoot the reality. And then those pictures went back and they went worldwide and he was suddenly worldwide famous right. because, because he got the horror of war because he left something to the imagination. Because those pictures, if that falling soldier had been absolutely pin sharp, you'd looked at it and gone away. Because but, it's not, you're looking for something else in it. Yeah, and there's a, he, he's also cast, not only is he capturing the image, but he's also capturing the sense of desperation that him himself as the photographer is having trying to get these images. Right, exactly. The His own fear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's like, uh, and I've, I've, funny enough, before that I started looking at stills, before I started, and having read all that, I started looking at war movie stills, and I looked at The Longest Day, Right, which is like everything is so pin sharp. The explosions are like <laughs> frozen. You could have painted them, right? Yeah. But it wasn't real. Yeah. You know, the explosion, I mean, I, I did a, I mean, having got that knowledge, I, there's a shot I did of guys in the Jeep, and I was in the Jeep in front of them, and we were moving like 50, 60 miles an hour, so I shot it at a 30th of a second. So it's all blurry. Yeah, it's, it's all blurry. Yeah. But you can still see the faces, but it's all blurry. Yeah. And the background's all blurry, and the explosions are all blurry. But, yeah. And I shot a lot of Private Ryan on slow shutter speeds. I would run with a camera and shoot, like sometimes 15th of a second. Yeah. There's a shot I have one of the actors running from a building where he's just witnessed his, his mate getting killed by his Nazi, and they pass on the stairs the Nazi has no weapon now because his knife is in that other Yeah, it's a soldier. brutal scene. It's brutal a very scene. brutal scene. Yeah. But they pass on the stairs and there's a moment of recognition. Mm -hmm. of like, but the, And this actor has all the bullet things around his neck and he's so terrified and horrified. He runs out the building and he runs across the street. Now, this is a set we've built, so it's all bombed out buildings. He runs across the street and he dives into a crater, right? Now, the camera tracks him across the street, so they're looking down the street. Mm -hmm. As he dives in, he dives out of frame. I am mm -hmm. waiting on the other side of the crater. So as he goes in, I go in with him, and our feet meet at the bottom. Wow. Right? And I shot a 15th of a second wow. on the Leica. Right? Wow. Now, when you look at the picture, you can see it's him, but he's blurry. Yep. But this, where the bullet, the, the bullet belts raise up through the air, 
sections of them are pin sharp because they're traveling the same speed as me. Super cool. But the rest of it is slightly out. Sorry, Super I couldn't cool. mic. No, it's okay. So, but so those are, that to me is magic. And they're still one of my favorite pictures on my website. That's one of my favorite pictures. That's like that moment. But then there's, you know, there's other moments like where it's, if, if you've got a scene where it's raining, right? Run with the rain. Yeah. Don't, don't worry about wiping the lens. Shoot through it. Yeah. And I did that a lot. And there's like, and when, you know, Stephen looked at it, he said, oh, David, this is so real. But another thing I did on that movie was that we had this lovely military advisor, Captain Dale Dye, who runs a company called, is maybe retired now, it's called Warriors Inc. Yeah, he's infamous. Yeah, he's yeah, the yeah. infamous. He's lovely, right? Yeah, yeah. He's like rock hard and good military man. But I, at the beginning of the movie, I said, Dale, I want to shoot this like a war photographer. So he said, okay, I tell you the secret of being a war photographer on the battlefield. The pictures are all bums and elbows. <laughs> you never want to get in front of guys charging with shooting guns. Of course And not. being shot at. Yeah. So bums and elbows. <laughs> and, and I said, I, I'm, I'm not going to show Stephen anything till you approved it. And I did that whole movie. Wow. He approved the stills before I showed him Stephen. No kidding. Yeah. Now, did you, you were, uh, for that, were you shooting film or were you shooting digital? For, I was shooting film. For film. Yeah. And so were you doing the same process? Were you printing out like large prints for him to view? For, for Stephen to view, yeah. So cool. Yeah. yeah. That's so lost right now because yeah. right now everybody's doing like the high motor, the camera motor shutter, and it's just like folders and folders of like 5,000 images of one set. I know. I've got a story about that. Uh-huh. Okay. I, I assume this goes know. way back to, um, and this, this I tell when I'm mentoring, I tell it every time that I started with a Rolleiflex, mm-hmm. right? There's mm-hmm. no motor on the Rolleiflex. But one of the first jobs I did, I was like 20 something years old. I maybe not even that, but I was doing Swan Lake with Rudolf Nureyev, the Russian ballet dancer, and Dame Margot Fontaine, who were a couple. Okay. Right, because Nureyev had, had um, jumped royal, the Russian ballet in New York and, and taken asylum. Okay. Right, but we were doing Swan Lake. We built the, the um, Royal um, Ballet's thing stage on the stage at Pinewood. So you recreated it? We recreated it because we, we wanted to film it as the stage performance. Okay. But not go to the theater and shoot it. Crazy. <laughs> so, well, makes a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah. But I'm down on the corner of the stage on the first morning, right? And I got my ruddy face there. I know the scene is going to be Dame Margot as the, as the ballet dancer is going to come across the stage and do some twirls in front of the camera. Mm-hmm. Right, so I'm down the corner, I'm out of the camera, and she comes uh, on her entrance to the set. She comes over on her points and hovers in front of me and then lowers herself down. She looks down at me, right, on the camera. She, she says, Have you ever shot ballet before, young man? I said, No, ma'am, I haven't. Mm-hmm. And she says, Okay, let me show you something. And she goes up on her points, she raises her arm and her limp her hand is limp 
Mm -hmm. right? She says, when you see my arm go up here, my hand is limp like that. Tell your, your brain has to tell your shutter finger to press the button. Because <laughs> by the time the message gets from there to your finger, my hand will be up. Oh, I see. So right? she's setting you up for it. She's setting up for it. So she said, "You, I never want to see my hand limp. I never want to see it after. So it's limp the other way. I always want to see it straight. So that is your timing, your anticipation. When you know those things, you see I'm coming to the end of a movement, it's the end of the movement I want. Because that is the art. We shot for three weeks. Yeah. She came to me on the last day. She said, young man, you learnt your lesson well. Now, for me, uh -huh. a motor drive, and I'm sad to say that these days all cameras have motor drives because digital is enough to wind the film on. Right, right, right. But I shoot mine on single frame. Yes. Because you have to anticipate the moment you want that moment. You if you hit the motor, it will miss it. Yeah. Because the motor has its own timing. Yep. You will absolutely miss the shot. So shoot single frame, make that moment. I mean, if you're, tr if you're learning photography, then borrow a four by five or something and shoot single frames on that. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Or, you know, get something like a Rolleiflex that is a single frame film camera and just shoot those single, make those single frame work. That's the only one you want. I agree with you completely. Yeah. I, I think that not only for that reason, but also it puts, mentally it puts you in the right space where you're thinking about a photograph. Yes. You're thinking about a moment. Yeah. And the thing that I can't stand about folders with 3,000 images in it is that I just get worn out. I start looking at those images and I get about 100 images deep, if that. And yeah. I'm like, I don't know what's good anymore. I don't know if this is any good anymore. Right. I just lose it. Yeah. Like I hate, I hate sorting through thousands of images. Yeah, me like too. Me too. No, I, I did when we were doing uh, Schindler's List. Uh, we, yeah, we had a scene one day, and it's like, you know, Germans firing guns at people, and so. And Stephen turns to me after and says, "Did you get it?" I said, "I got one." He said, "It's the only one you need." <laughs> What was, but, how was it like? What was it like working with Spielberg? I've, uh, I've had actors on the show that work with him and say he's amazing. He is incredible, and, and for a photographer, he is the best. Yeah, I mean, you say, well, he, yeah, you know, he, he is brilliant. There are other good ones as well you know, who will let you, like Norman Jewison and sure. Bill, Bill Condon, and say, you know, yeah, yeah, of course, they were like awesome. But Stephen has a way. When our first days on Schindler's List, our first day on Schindler's List, we were at Plashoff Concentration Camp, which is a set that we built, but we built yeah. it on the site of the camp. Uh, at the actual location? Yeah. Oh, my yeah. God, I didn't know that. Yeah, with the set of the camp being destroyed, but we built, rebuilt. But um, he, um, that was filmed because you only shoot black and white on, mm -hmm. on that. But anyway, he comes to me on the first day, and he said, let me prelude that. We had a crew get together party the night before, <laughs> right? So, sorry, everyone could meet each other. Yeah, okay. And he was, I was told that I was, his assistant said, you're the only person on the crew he did not want to meet before he started shooting. Spielberg? Yes. How come? Yeah, because, well, I, it took me a long while to find that out, but. Um, I had done 
Yentl and other stuff with Barbara Streisand. And then I moved to America and I was, I was actually driving off the lot at um, Universal, having dropped my portfolio at Stephen's office. Mm -hmm. uh, and Renato's, Barbara's longtime wonderful assistant, said, David, we, we're checking up on you, right? Because it was Barbara who really instigated me coming to America. We're checking up on you. How are you doing? I said, oh, I'm, I'm kind of anticipating us and kind of excited. I said, I just dropped my portfolio off at Steven Spielberg's office. <laughs> and she said, what for? I said, I heard he's doing this film all in black and white. And Schindler's this, right? Uh -huh. And she said, oh, I get Barbara to call him. <laughs> and then about three or four days later, I get a call from Steven's office that um, you could pick your portfolio up. Um, he wants you to do the movie, but he didn't look at it before. I said, okay. Okay. And then I didn't get to meet him until his party, right? So I went up to him and said, Stephen, I'm David James. I said, Thank you for having me here with you. He said, oh, you, we're going to get great. He said, I said, tell me what you want from me. Sure. And he said, I want you to show me what you want to show me. You pick them, you show me. I don't want to see contact sheets. No time for them. Just what your choice, you show me. And, you know, eight by tens will do. So, okay, great. So I, that's the way I work. Mm -hmm. But on the first day, we started shooting the next morning, and he pulled me aside, and we are in the camp, and he said, David, everywhere I go, I'll be followed by 15 people. Hmm. with scripts and this and that. He said, everywhere you go, you're on your own. Hmm. So consider you're my second pair of eyes. You see something that I don't get a chance to see, please come tell me. Wow. You know, and, and I would do that. And they say, wow. and, and there, there are a couple of times, I mean, later on, we did a film called AI together. Yeah. Uh, and there was, there was a scene where was David the character? Yes, yeah, David. Yeah, yeah. Right. David comes back from the hospital in his wheelchair and is met with the other David, the robot David. Right? Mm -hmm. And they meet in the hallway of the house with the families around them. And Stephen shot it mostly over shoulder. I shot it for like three quarter favoring the David coming in. Mm -hmm. right, but you guys, I could see two profiles. And when Stephen saw that still, about three or four days later, he, he some of the actors had been wrapped. Right? <laughs> he pulled them all back for an extra <laughs> shoot. And, and he's like, bless him, he said, okay, we're going to do, redo that entrance scene. Um, I'm going to my office. David, James, you could set it up and t have them call me when you're ready. <laughs> Um, yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, thank, thanks to um, Ray Stella, the operator, and, and Janusz. Yeah. We set it up because there's no way else. Janusz is a legend, too. What's it like working well, with him? Janusz is because it was Janusz's first film and my first film, Schindler's. Really? Yeah. Janusz had never worked with Stephen before. Oh, wild. I didn't realize that that was yeah. his first Stephen. Yeah, film. yeah, yeah. Yeah, because they've done everything since. Yes, they have. Yeah, they yeah, have, yeah, 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 yeah. I would not want to do that. What? Just work with one director? Yeah, 
Okay. I, I, but because I want different art, different visuals, different perspectives. You know, perspectives. Yeah. yeah. And and if if you know sometimes if if a director is going to make a film that I don't particularly want to be on, then then I'd rather not. You know, I'd rather. Life's too short. You, you, we want to experience different people, different perspectives, different ways to look at. I mean, the directors I've worked with. I mean, for like Ken Russell, and we did Women in Love and the Music Lovers. Incredible, you know. Say, and, yeah, and, and Steven Spielberg and, and, and Rob Marshall and, and Bill Condon. I mean, these all guys have totally different aspect of filmmaking. And I want to experience all of that. Well, if you think about it, at that point you're going back to being in the in the graveyard, staring past the stones at that one guy who wasn't tied down to everybody that had a camera around his neck. You're right. going back to the absolute, original. absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. If you think about it, because that yeah. was the thing that got you into the business to begin with. Yeah. was that freedom. Yeah, it's yeah. That, exactly. It's that that being a one man person. I was, I guess, as as. You know, I'm in the middle of one of three boys. Okay. In my family, but being in the middle of one of three boys, you were uh, sometimes with the older one, sometimes with the younger one, but you were single. You were a, a lone unit. Mm. Well, that's how I felt. Hmm. At school, I never had a big bunch of friends. I had acquaintance friends. Yep. But never like guys I hung out with. Right? And it's like, so I was always that single person. So being on a, a set on the movie, it suited me to be a single unit to do my thing. Right, right. And wander around and do my thing. And, and there are moments, I mean, which are purely magical on, on film that I had um, on Schindler's List. There was a scene that is not in the movie that I set up with Stephen's blessing. And... Ray Fiennes post for it. During the time of Armand Gert ran Plashoff Camp, mm -hmm. and he would have a carbine because we, we had survivors come to the set. You know, and, and this one kid who was at one time Armand Gert's office boy. Wow. Because he could read and write, and, and Gert would dictate to him. Wow, and he would do the, you know, do all of. He would take all the notes. He'd be his secretary. Yeah, yeah. But he said that, and there, he said there was a moment where he had a carbine on the hook on the shelf on the wall, right? And then he'd be dictating, and he had a mirror. He was his back was to the camp. He had a mirror up on the other wall, mm -hmm. and he would just stop dictating. He'd get up, pick up a carbine go out and shoot a prisoner, a woman prisoner because she wasn't moving fast enough. Unreal. Right? But he says also there was a, a picture that I was fascinated by. It was Armand Gert with a carbine up, sorry, no with, with a carbine up shooting. Right? And this picture apparently, and this guy explained it to me, was that they, they had certain... Jews were allowed out to shop and do things because they were semi-collaborating with, but it worked for all of them because they were bringing messages backwards and forwards. And sure, sure. So they had certain freedom, 
But this guy came in one day and he had a big tie on with circles in the tie in the pattern. One of the circles sent had been taken out and he had the Leica behind it. So it looked like the circle. And Armagur was, sh was sh shooting visit and this guy took a picture. Unreal. They took that film, it was black and white film, and they put it in a cigarette tobacco can. <laughs> they took some bricks out from the center square class, you know, statue thing, and put this can in there and then put the bricks back. And it was well after the war oh that God. someone remembered it was there. They took it out, developed it, it was perfect. Oh my and God. And I saw a print. So I showed it, I had a print of the print. I showed it to Stephen and to, I said, Stephen, I want to set this up. And he said, okay, do it, let's do it. And then I got Rafe to stand there in exactly the pose with his belly sticking out. I've seen, I've seen waist. that image, yes. Yeah, well, yeah. That, that I set up from that original shot. I had no idea. But that you see, for, that, for moments like that, Stephen was awesome because he would let you do this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there was a scene in Lincoln where they're getting, they're in the basement of the government building and they got the tele, teletype machine coming through and they had everybody and Lincoln standing there as the news was coming in from um, North Carolina, South Carolina, battle of the fa mm -hmm. you know, casualties and stuff. Mm -hmm. and then, but the way the scene was being shot was different. But I had an original print well, in the book, obviously. Sure. Of the group that, and but they had like two or three cameras on this scene because there were so many. I said, Stephen, I want to set this up. And he looked at it and said, okay, pull those cameras back. <laughs> right? Pulling that, it's David's floor. So he would direct it with me and we would get exactly when we got that picture as per thing. But see, Stephen would do that and, and he, but he, Stephen was like, your eyes were his eyes and yeah. his eyes were your eyes. Yeah. You know, and he was. But it's, it's, it's so valuable there's a lot of young directors that listen to the show, and this is something that I, I just want to point it out. There's something incredibly valuable about understanding that even though you have the skills to make a great movie, if you can't sell that movie, if you can't promote that movie, it goes absolutely nowhere. Exactly. exactly. And so that he has that, he knows that you're there for the good reason, for the good cause. Yeah, yeah. And, and if you're that invested that you're bringing reference materials from that have an amazing story, I mean, regardless if that picture of, of Ray Fiennes was used for a poster, just the fact that it's a story around this thing and that Stephen's trying to make such a, a true-to-life piece on right. what actually happened, to have that in just promotional stuff that he might just send to industry people. Right. That in itself would have the power to help that film. Well, exactly. I mean, say, like, I think one one of the thoughts that came to me after was that with with the the rows of beans, right, the cans of beans. From oh yeah, 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 like, yeah, yeah. What we talking what, about? What if you make the beans and put me? Why wouldn't you want to sell them? Because <laughs> yeah, no one's going to open the can. You know. Yeah. yeah. You want to sell those beans, so you, you sell it. Yeah. You use the tools to sell it. You can't sell it by the. I've I've heard 
comments from wannabe directors that I don't need. I don't need stills. I don't know what I want stills for. It's like, I'm sorry, but if you 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 making that film for your own archives to stick in, so you can watch it on TV <laughs> at the weekend? No, you want to sell it. You're making a product. You want to yeah. get the message over to the public. Yep. How can you do that if the public don't know you ever made it? But as a director, it's irresponsible of me. Like if I go to a studio or if I go to a financier and that financier gives me 30, 30 million, 20 million, if I'm doing a big movie, $150 million, I have to make that money back. That's part of what my job is. Right. Yeah. And so to not have that foresight and to not have an understanding of all the tools at my disposal to help promote and market and bring people in. And then if I'm even slick about it, I understand that I can subvert expectations with my marketing and we can work together to actually shape what, what this film yeah. should be marketed as. Yeah. And then make the experience even more interesting when you go see the, th it's, you said it best where you're helping make this movie and you're all coming together to bring the most to this project. Right. And I think in our industry, the press goes to the actors, the press goes to the director, maybe the cinematographer these days, as I have a cinematographer magazine on the table here, they get some credit. But this really goes through the entire crew. Yeah. And everybody on that crew, their main goal is to help make this movie and have the general public see this fucking movie. No one man can make a movie. It's it, man. Yeah. That's nuts. And if he does, what for? Because it's boring. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Yeah. It's boring. I've I've said this on the show quite a few times. When I started uh, and I was being trained, I was shooting black and white reversal, no sound back in the early days and I had to edit on a steam back. So I had that whole process of like cutting film and bins were actually bins where you hung up the stuff that you cut out of. Right, film. Yeah. And so, um, I was enamored with Hitchcock. So your Hitchcock story was like huge. Um, but I was like, okay, I'm going to storyboard everything. I'm going to put everything together. And so my first film was just that I, I drew out all my panels. I only shot what were on my panels. And then I went into the edit room and we, would share this basement edit space with a bunch of other filmmakers, all these steam backs in a row. And I sat down and I cut my movie really quick. It was just, this is the storyboards, here's everything, and put it together, pasted it together, and I was done. It was completely boring to me. The most interesting aspect of all of it was when I drew the, the original storyboards. Right. The rest of it was rhythmic. I was like, okay, I got to get this shot, I got to get that shot. And then I look at all my fellow classmates, and they're just jubilant of like, wow, and look what this person brought to this, and blah, 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 and they're so excited. And so since I finished mine so early, and my film was okay, and I went and I hung out with my friends, and I got to learn from their experiences, and I said, this is it. Yeah. It's collaboration. Right. It's finding these people to be around. It's getting excited to at every step of this process, because if you take on a movie as a director, you're talking at least two years of your life. Right. And you want to make sure that most of that time is inspiring to yeah. you. And that keeps that story alive and that story builds and changes. Right. With the, these people. That it, absolutely. With. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, Stephen, I remember Stephen telling me one day, one of, one of the thrills he gets at the end of the movie, it's like he loves to shoot with film. Mm-hmm. To be sitting in the editing room and having those strips of film in his hand as he puts them in the machine. Super cool. Ah, he said that that, that to him is, is that's the magic of the movie, you know. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. I was uh, we recently went to 
I think it's the Academy Museum that's here in Los Angeles. I think it's what it is. Right. Yes. Yeah. And they have a whole um, display for um, Scorsese's uh, editor. There. Right. So they have the steam back and all the film pieces. And when I walked through that place, I felt like I was back in film school again. It's it's completely different. Yeah. That sort of dark room, small little projected little window that you're putting the film through, and you just you're huddled on like some folding chair over these platters, right. and you're just making a movie. And I I mean I'm not shit I'm not trash talking uh, the the current way of doing it. It's just everything is so digital, and the tools that you this is why I don't like shooting movies or things with my iPhone is that now these tools have multiple functions. Like yeah. I get texts from my girlfriend on my phone, the same phone that I'm going to shoot movies right. with. No, that's right. Yeah. yeah. I don't think yeah. I'm going to do no, that. Yeah, no. yeah. Like it's, it's the pageantry of, and the process of getting ready to tell a story and having specific tools for that process, yeah. which yeah. I really enjoy. Yeah. I'm glad to say that under the, under one of the seats in my car, is a Fuji camera. <laughs> <And it's, laughs> Just in case? Always. Yeah. It's always have one. Right? Yeah, yeah. And it's like, yeah, I use my iPhone quite a lot. Sure. But I don't want to carry anything. It, the Fuji camera is, is the X Pro, too. So it's like having a Leica, you only cover one eye up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's another point. It's a very interesting point as well. Is that the camera you're using. I, I love one of the things I loved about the Leica, mm -hmm. besides its lenses, obviously, but its quality, is that you only cover one eye, so you still have an eye-to-eye -eye contact with your subject, and for what's going on around your subject. Yes, right. If you have a camera that is a single lens reflex, and it goes over your face, you are suddenly a camera. You're not a person anymore. Right, and that that changes the way that your subjects are interacting. Absolutely, with you. yeah, completely. Absolutely, you know. It's, it's, I mean, that there are moments like that that are so. But another thing with Stephen, he you, he won't look at contact sheets and he won't look at stills on the screen. Oh, like yeah, so he has he to wants print a it. print in his hand. Thank you, like Otto, give me a good print. Yeah. I mean, and when when I I did um, Indiana Jones with him, which is I had so much fun because I did I it was another shooting diary book I did with him on that one. Wait, whoa, 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 I didn't know you did. Which Indiana Jones did you do? The first one, Crystal Skull. Okay, okay, wild. Uh, okay, yeah, so I did a book on that one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which came by default became a bestseller, <laughs> which is totally weird. <laughs> <laughs> Because it's got Harrison Ford in it. <laughs> well, no, no, what happened was, is that because I'd, I'd done Ghost Protocol, Shooting Diary. Mm -hmm. I did, I mean, done like three of them, right? But the, the Harris, the, the um, Indiana Jones one, uh, the publisher phoned me up and they said, Hey, do you know what happened today? I said, No, I said, You are now registered in the Library of Congress as a best selling author. I said, and my, my brain went, ka-ching, ka-ching. Yeah. I said, so we talked about it. I said, well, so how much does that mean? He says, well, nothing. You haven't made your royalties back yet, your, your advanced royalties, which weren't that much, right? Uh, welcome and to he the said, business. Yeah, yeah, right. And he said, no, he said, what happened was that Target bought like 300,000 copies of it or something. So, and we sold them to $1.69 each. 
Yeah, great. Sci-fi. <laughs> but you're registered in the Library of Congress, which my, my accountant said, well, that's fine. You can now, if you want to write your memoirs, go rent a villa in Jamaica or somewhere and sit there for a month. You could tax deducted. <laughs> yeah, that, that ain't going to happen. Because <laughs> um, I'd go fishing. <laughs> Think about them, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. But no, but Stephen would like, I, when, when we did that one, so Stephen would only decide what he was going to send to the studio. Right. Studio were not allowed to have my daily take. They only have what Stephen would show them. Smart, because then he's he's filtering what they're seeing. Yeah, he's filtering yes, their but expectations. I, but, but I did, if you ever listen to this, um, I did do a sneaky one day. There was a shot that um, was over his shoulder. He was he was um, framing up on one of the actors, mm -hmm. and I saw him like with his hands up, like, framing. So I went to his right shoulder. And he slightly moved his head a little bit, so I got a bit of his pro. Not much, right? I shot one frame, and he walked away. Because mm -hmm. right? he said, you only need one. Mm -hmm. But so I, I then would do, every lunchtime, I'd do, like, not big prints. I'd do, like, four on the sheet or, you know, four shots on the sheet on an 8 by 10 and he could just use those, like, pre sheets. Sure. So I, I thought, okay, I will make six versions of this. They're all identical, but instead of just giving him one, which is our thing, that if you give them one and they kill it, like actors will, will kill 50% or their agent will kill 50%, right? So that's another beauty of digital is that you can give them all new numbers and take away the original frame number and then you can give them, if you've got an actor once, just going to take 50%, because it's often not the actor that does it. Yeah. Um, so you give them enough to kill 50%, you've still got 50% left. Right. right. So on this one, I did six versions, or six identical bridges, right? <laughs> Stephen killed three of them. And they are identical. So what do you... One of these days, I'm going to ask him, what What did you see not in those? Yeah, yeah. So what do you think? So do you think it's just the power that they have or the fact that if you're handing someone a bunch of choices, they have to make a decision in order no, to feel like they've you done know, something? No, something, something, sometimes it's totally ridiculous. Okay. I did the film, The Game with Stephen, um, and I would do my selects of it, and I would print them A3, it's 11 by 14, yeah, Prince and for Stephen, and then Stephen showed him to the actors. Colin Farrell was one of the actors, right? And Colin, I got on so well with him that he Colin's hero in life was Oliver Reed, and I'd done a lot of things with Oliver Reed, so we had lots of lots of things lots to, of talk to talk about. about yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Um, but at the end, almost the end of the movie. The publicist came to me and said, all those selects that you've done, that Stephen liked, and he said, Colin's publicist or manager has killed us about all of them. So Why? I said, well, she said, I, know. I said, well, leave this to me, please. Yeah. I went to Stephen, and I said, Stephen, these selects, I know you love, I know Colin loves them. Colin's agents killed them all. 
Uh, he's, uh, okay, let me get. I said, no. May I? I because I, this fascinates me. This happens so much in my career. He said, yeah, please, mm -hmm. but let keep me informed, right? Sure. So one day, this person has an office on Sunset Boulevard. So I have a box, a nice big, uh, not yellow box anymore, a nice archival box. And I go down the sunset and I make a phone call to this person. I said, hi, my name is David James. I'm a still photographer on the movie and I know you represent Colin. I said, I just happen to be in the neighborhood and I have pictures with me. Um, would you like to see them? Mm. Oh my God, yes. How kind of you. Mm. That's really, well, how thoughtful. Yes, please, come up now. I'm in the meeting, but please come up. So I go in, and this woman's sitting in this office, and she's got three guys in suits on the sofa. I says, oh, come in, come in. Let me see. And she's going, oh, my God, these are wonderful. Oh, my, oh, look. And she's showing these guys, and she goes through them, and she says, thank you so much for showing me these. I said, well, you're very welcome, but I have one question. She said, yes, what's that? I said, you love them, right? Yeah. Why'd you kill them? Wow. And she said, wow. What do you mean? I said, every one of these shots has been killed by you. Wow. I said, Colin loves them. Steven Spielberg loves them. You don't. But now you're telling me you do. Wow. And these guys going, yeah. <laughs> They're looking at her, and she calls her assistant in. She says, I don't do the stills. She calls her assistant in. She says, why did you? And she goes, why did you kill these stills? They're wonderful. And she says, I don't do it. What? So I said, well, who does it? She says, whatever temp we got in that day. I said, so one, she's calling her boyfriend, doing her fingernails. She's merrily crossing pictures off just because she can. Unreal. Well, yeah. I said, thank you very much. I take the pictures. I said, these are going back to Mr. Spielberg, and so is the report on this meeting. And they're like, and I see the guys going, and their heads all turn to her. Yeah. Yeah, right, you want to talk to us? Yeah. So, but it was true. And I went back to Stephen. I said, that's that. I said, you've got to question everything. Um, <laughs> See, what a great story. What a great fucking, what a great story. And the fact that you called them out on it is great. Yeah. That's great. And it's true because there's so many systems in place with how Hollywood works with these things that... And, and believe me, I sort of feel the same way if I'm like sending out treatments or if I'm sending out ideas, if I'm pitching on things, and then I'll interact with someone later and they're like, I, I never even saw that. I don't, I don't even know what that is. Yeah, I have, an, I have another funny, okay, a very funny action on that one. Dame Judy Dench, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. I did nine with her, with Daniel Day-Lewis. Mm -hmm. She is just wonderful. So I had the same thing, right? that she had killed almost everything that I had selected and she had looked at on the set, right? I showed, oh my darling, these are wonderful, right? And the director, everybody loved them, right? And then the publicist came to me, she said, um, Judy killed just about all those doors. So I, I said, and she said, I'll hang on. And I said, no, let me, please. <laughs> so I went to Judy and I said, Judy, you know these stills that you loved? Yes, darling. I said, well, why'd you kill them? Oh. She said, I'm sorry. 
I do this when I'm in makeup. He says, I'm as blind as a bat. I just put crosses anywhere. I said, Judy, please. She said, all right, would you do them for me? I said, yes. And she said, I said, anything I should look for? She says, yes, if you get one round slightly with my back to camera, watch my bum's not so big. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And she was like, I had loved her for that. You know, I yeah. loved her for that. It's like, but this this is what happens. You know, well, to, it's but but even if you're not doing something at that scale, you're doing something on a smaller scale with just a subject that you're dealing with. I feel like when you email contact sheets and you're no longer present for that process, it's cold. And then the person that's having photographs are taken of them are already self conscious because they're seeing themselves right through someone else's eyes, which is different than when you see yourself in the mirror. It's very different because you're seeing a different perspective of yourself. And I think for for some folks that have never been photographed professionally before, they look at that and they go, what? Because they're seeing this personality that doesn't feel like them, that they're not putting their own personal filters through. Right. And so I feel like if you're just emailing stuff away to your clients, there's no connection there. I feel like if I sit down with them and I'm going through it and I'm just like, what do you like? What do you don't like? And have that conversation, you can sort of filter through it and be like, this is just you being insecure. This is gorgeous. And I think that the people are going to see it the same way that I saw it. And they're not really going to notice this thing that you're hung up on. Right. You know? no, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. It was the same, you know, same when you're photographing people, it's your relationship with the person you're photographing. 100%. You know, I, I was like, my favorite thing to do is like, when, when you, if I want you to look in, there's no lens. I want you to look in the back of my brain. Huh. Take that focus through the camera. There's no camera. Get it into the back of my, get yourself into the back of my head. Because that way, you will, I said, imagine you go into a magazine rack in the airport, mm -hmm. and you all those women's magazines, particularly, right? And there's all those lovely faces looking at you. Which one do you go for first? The one who has eye contact from that magazine cover with you. Yeah. And that's done by looking through, not at. Yeah. Because if you look at that lens, your focus stops there. Fascinating. Right? Fascinating. But your focus beyond that. Yeah, yeah. And I've, I've had lots of actresses that said to me, thank you for that. I never realized that. I'm like, I'm, I'm like hammering that into my brain right yeah. now because that is so true, so specific. Yeah, because I've been in front of a camera and when you're in front of the camera, you're like, what am I looking at? Am I looking at the glass on the lens? Am I looking at the lip of the lens? Like, right. what is the point of reference for me? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you've got to get, you know, get to the person you're talking to and that connection is interesting because we just we were doing some research for some music video work recently and we were sort of digging through footage and i and i'm kind of going to go off on a little story here but i feel like music videos and promotional images for artists should forefront be about selling the artist selling the emotion of the artist selling the experience that the audience artist wants to give you right and I think that as a director, there's a lot of us directors that get into the music video world because we want to be filmmakers. And so we get into this game and um, a lot of directors start to bring their own 
personal goal into it, which is like, I want to do movie scenes. I want to set scenes. I want to do this stuff. And so we should shoot this with this kind of camera and we should shoot all this kind of coverage and we should do this. And we were just doing a, a real tight examination of this one artist because we were pitching on this artist. And so we watched this uh, artist's specific video and there was one shot in it where the artist was wearing a, a really interesting outfit. He had this connection with the camera and he was connecting with the camera. And as you're watching that take, the camera starts to move and he moves and I'm with him and I start to be with him. And then the director cuts away, cuts to some sort of coverage of like people roller skating by. And I'm like, what's going on? And then cuts back to the artist and the artist is there. And I'm like, whoa, here he is. There's that outfit. Let me catch with him. Let me catch it. And I start to get his eye and then they cut again and then they cut again. Right. And this is something that came, I think, from the post-90s MTV era where you were doing stuff on television. They were all sort of back-to-back, -back, and it had to be the most interesting, vivid, fast-cut pieces to keep the attention span. Right. But I think what gets lost there is the connection to the artist, is that eye contact yeah. and that connect. And this is our new, it's not even a new theory. This is sort of the, a study that, that Gene and I have been doing recently, which is like, let's strip everything the fuck down. Because now we're talking about MTV doesn't exist. We're talking about social media content. We're talking about uh, people looking at stuff on a story slide, whether it's on Instagram or if it's on TikTok. And they're literally looking at it for 15 seconds. And so... Yeah. You're almost going back now to photography again because it's so fast and it's about these moments. And I think that the, the mistake that we're, a lot of filmmakers are currently doing is that they're living off of the old MTV rule, which is like, hey, people are going to sit and watch this for three and a half minutes on rotation, right? which is different. And when you were mentioning looking beyond the lens and looking into that, that was what I was seeing in some of these shots in this music video from this artist that I wish they stopped cutting away from because I was like, there's the connection. Yeah. There's How, that point. You think of actors on stage. Mm -hmm. They're not looking at the camera. Mm -hmm. They're eye contacting with the audience. Yeah. No, and it's amazing. Yeah. And when you feel that. Right. Right? And especially yeah. if they're conveying a story and you're putting yourself into that place, yeah. into that moment. Yeah. That's and what's if, if you're getting a monologue from an actor, you may have like a hundred people in there in mm -hmm. the audience, but every single one thinks that he's looking at them. Exactly, exactly. And they feel yeah. like they're a piece of that story. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. And I understand your job. I understand talking about this. I understand what it is that you were doing. And then I understand why you've been doing it for so long. Well, it's still magic, you know, it's still magic.
So what I'm going to do is I'm going to cut it here, okay? Because we go on, we take a break, and then David comes back, and we talk for at least another hour at the back end of this. And I think that would be better used as a second episode. Now, what I'll try to do is either release that on Thursday this week or release it Tuesday next week. I'll figure it out. Um, but uh, there's so much great stuff here, and I want to give you guys a breather. I want to give you some time to think about all the great stuff that David told us on this episode, process that, and then, you know, tease you and get you excited to come back and listen to the rest of it. Uh, I, Dude, I'm telling you, I get so lost in his stories, and I know he's got so many. And so the trick when I'm interviewing him is to just stay out of the way, really, and I hope you guys have enjoyed that. I hope you guys have enjoyed uh, some of the lessons that he's taught us. And are you like me? Do you just feel pure jealousy? <laughs> There's a sense of envy that I have at just the time in which he go, went into the business. Because it is very different now than it was back then. And the power of uh, photographs, the process of taking great photographs, the trade that was being a photographer was much more different and a lot more valued back then than it is right now. It's a little bit more difficult for modern day photographers because everybody's got a fucking iPhone. Everybody's got a nephew that's got a DSLR. And so we sort of hit this point where the clients have really sort of cheapened what the industry is. That being said, now more than ever, the power of an image means everything. And whether you're talking about a photograph or if you're talking about a GIF or a moving image, or if you're talking about a 15 second video clip that ends up on Instagram stories or on TikTok, this is what is selling things. This is where the audience is looking for stuff. And I think a lot of what David is teaching us on these two episodes, and as we get into the second episode, he really breaks some stuff down, which is really fascinating. A lot of the stuff he's teaching us is important skills that we can use today. And these are skills that we can use to put ourselves ahead of a lot of the other folks. And if you're listening to someone that's older like myself or David, who's older than me, telling you things like, I don't like to shoot uh, multiple photos at the same time. It's all about capturing one image. And you kind of roll your eyes because you just picked up that brand new camera on the market that could shoot like 30 images in a half second and you're like yeah but that is everything that is why i got the camera it is about shooting as many images as possible and then i can grab all those images sure you can try to get to the root of what he's saying which is it's about being mentally prepared to take a photograph is about being physically present is about not relying on that piece of equipment to do your job for you and i'm not saying that it's cheaper if you let the camera do the job for you. I'm just saying that mentally you're less present because as you sort of listen to further adventures from David on the next few episodes, there will be times where you have to answer for your work. You will have to defend your work. You will have to circumvent certain pathways to get your work to stand out and to be used. And the best way to do that is to be incredibly connected to your work from the beginning to the end. So when David says he takes one picture at a time, he's mentally putting himself in that space to be a hyper-focused and very connected in the moment. And it's that moment that could potentially 
sell that product, sell that artist, sell that movie. Anyway, hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Definitely come back for the second part. Uh, and I want to thank everybody again for following me on Instagram at Mike Petchy and following the podcast at In Love With The Process Pod. Um, without your help, I couldn't make this show possible. And please, when you listen to our sponsors, visit them on Instagram and say, hey, thank you, thank you, thank you. Head on over to our Fujifilm link, because without Fujifilm, I wouldn't have been able to make this show possible. Not only do they support us, but they introduced me to David. So the power of Fujifilm, they genuinely want to help out photographers, and they genuinely want to have these connections made. All right, that's it. I will see you guys for the second part of today's episode.